Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence. From Riverwalk Studio, this is the Cubic Shenanigans Warhammer Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the cube, the cube, the cube, the cube, the cube. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 79 of the Cubic Shenanigans Warhammer podcast. I am your host, Dan. And I'm Brendan. And we are joined once again by our dear friend, Tyler Emerson. Tyler, welcome back for your annual visit. Thanks, man. Happy to be here with you, Jen. It's like a Sigmar physical. You know, you go in every year for See, it. See, I was going to say, do we bill this to Medicare, Medicaid? <laughs> Is this Uh-oh. covered under AARP? You know, what are we doing? This is. Uh... I, I was told there would be no po- political discussion on this show. No, so. no, none, none at all. No, no. Oh no, mine We're was just an age asking joke. simply for billing purposes. That's oh, all. billing purposes. Yeah, okay. that's it. So yeah, we're just great. It's it's just wonderful to have you back and that yeah. we can talk Sigmar and other things with you and and just hang out for a couple few hours. So. Thanks for making the time and and, uh, joining us today. We're going to do our third part of our Sigmar series. And Brendan, what are we going to be talking about? So in this part, we're going to talk about your grand strategies, battle tactics, the new battle plans, endless spells and what they've changed. And we're going to be talking about what all that means through understanding our implementation at events and through practice games and things like that. So it'll be informed commentary to what we've seen work and how it is that we approach these different subject matters and how impactful they actually can be. I think that's it. I don't think there's any small talk before we get started this time. No, this one's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I think so. So let's jump right in to Whispers from the Warp. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Tyler, being the guest, you're first up with Hobby. Things planned, things done? Sure. Let's see, we've gotten some games in. Obviously, still no painting, despite Vince Ventrella's best efforts. <laughs> Let's see, last game played. I'm getting some games in with Daughters of Cain. I'm going to take them to Flying Monkey and probably Siege World. It's looking like it'll be a friendly Daughters of Cain with 10 snake bows, not the 15. Much <sighs> friendlier. Makes oh, all the difference. So, so kind. The, I've, I, I've played the 15, and it, it it's, it's bad. That's like... <laughs> Bad monkey, man. You don't want to do that. Yeah. yeah. So I'll expect uh, five out of five on best games, you know, best <laughs> sports votes for that decision. Marathi, you know, it's my excuse is my friend who I'm borrowing this from, he doesn't have 2,000 points to take without Marathi. Mm. So she's in there regardless. <laughs> obviously, that's how you turn the army on. And it's, it's fairly different without her. But yeah, so just getting some practice games in, getting a feel for the army again. There's a lot of chatter about Daughters of Cain. They're obviously still strong. Uh, I am an elf lover, so I do have that bias. Mm -hmm. Uh, My counterpart I've already mentioned on the show that I've been helping out because Tom Lyons is on hiatus. He thinks that Marathi needs to go up at least another 100 points. We've been having this debate. The army has taken a bit of a step back from the heights of 2.0 when they were definitely undercosted. They have fewer screens now, all those mm. equal in list. And in general, it's still a glass cannon army. So pretty much anything that gets touched dies apart from Marathi. They're also an army that showed up in J.P. Gannis's data where they're very player oriented or player dependent. You know, how well you play them dictates how well you do. Mm. You know, whereas like Caradron in 2.0 had the, the least of that. 
you know, that was an army. If you weren't that familiar with the game, you'd run Caradron to optimize your odds of doing well. Anyhow, yeah, it's been interesting picking them up again. Like, they're, they're still okay. strong, but I think they might be a little overhyped, personally. Okay, fair enough. You see a lot of parts and pieces of the community, so you would be able to judge that better. So, Brendan, what are you doing on the table and other stuff? Painting-wise, I have painted three whole fell bats since our last Woo! show. Yeah, and I built a lock of eye and five more blood knights because mm-hmm. I have been trying to workshop what my Nashcon second list mm-hmm. was going to be. When we talk about games played, I think I've settled on something that I quite like. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, not too much hobby. It was a lot of time and energy getting ready for Ranthathon and then... You know, once that oh, yeah. was over, I just kind of wanted to relax for a little bit, you know, write some lists and figure out what I needed to spend my energy on over the course of the, the next couple weeks. Great. Just to reset. Cool, yeah. You have been very busy, though, Dan. Oof, man. Very busy. <laughs> the last show, I think I had gotten my 60 zombies done in my Gorslav. But this time, since the last show, I actually got forty or 30 skellies and my necromancer finished. I've built and primed and converted all of my Dreadscythe Herodons, which... It, appears I'm going to be we're going to play hopefully a game next week to verify or validate that choice but I think I'm going to go with 20 Herodons so I'm going to have to get them painted and then I have a mystery model Brendan that I'm going to try to get painted and and ready and I'm not going to try I'm going to do because I have to it's it's one of my two lists for Nashcon so you know like the last couple weeks Cindy's been so funny she's like that's all you've been doing it's like yeah kind of but yeah we'll get it done after Nashcon I only have like maybe 40 or 50 uh, chain rafts to build and paint that's easy easy so- <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. It's all talk right now. But yeah, that's been me. Yeah, like you said, pretty busy and pretty steady on... Yeah, you got those skeletons done, like, out of nowhere. It was just... One day, just all of them were done in the Discord, and I went, hmm, maybe he is going to have this done for a tournament before Ragnarok. At this pace, yeah, he might. See, and the fun part, Tyler, Brendan knows this, but the fun part is that having 60 zombies and 30 skellies, I've got like two-thirds of my horde stuff done for my soul blight. Yeah, I mean, definitely. the only thing I really have to do now is some grave guard and then a few units of wolves, but having those 90 models done is huge. I mean, that puts so much of that behind me, and now I got right. lots. It takes a lot of pressure off to get them done by January, so... Did you get your hands on any Blood Knights? I have. I've got two boxes of them, but I, again, they'll be sometime in the next five months. <laughs> I yeah. get those ready as we play with different lists, and I see what people are doing and are, what they're successful with, so... Yeah. yeah. So I think that's it then. Gents for hobby. Uh, let's move on to stuffs that are coming out. Uh, we have some pre-orders for 40K. The Sisters Codex has already come out. This is almost all sister stuff for 40K. The Sisters Codex has already been released, but they're going to release a patrol box, the combat patrol thing. There's a Reliquent, which is a character. There's the Monastery Tank, the Castigator. <laughs> And that's going to come out. And then the Battlezone Mechanicus terrain. Now, this is stuff they've had already. This has been out. They're just reissuing is what they're doing. And it was put out for Kill Team. So since they're re-releasing Kill Team, they're re-releasing this Battlezone Mechanicus stuff. So that you have terrain for it. Mm-hmm. So when you could use anything. I mean, you could use Necromunda stuff, whatever you want for Kill Team. But So that stuff's all coming out. There's been more in terms of product. That's really what's on the plate. There's more Kill Team stuff that's come out. We've seen a bunch of Dragon stuff for Sigmar, which is really interesting. Yeah. To see what they do with that. I have to say, I did enjoy the Why I Hate Horses little short video. That was pretty clever. Sure. 
pretty good. Those previews are all out. Okay, let's move on to games played. Brendan, how about you? I am, I think, like four missions in on Iron Harvest Mm -hmm. into the Saxony campaign. And the first couple missions in the Saxony campaign are incredibly stupid in how difficult they are. I do enjoy a good challenge. Of course you do. However, there were a couple of spots in it where I just (laughs) sat there, I paused the game, I put my hands in the air, and I went... What on earth am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> save frequently, save frequently. Yeah, well, it wasn't even that. It was just I was out-teched. They had way more resources than I did. Mm. And I'm sitting there and I go, how do you want me to advance? Like right. the, right. It's been good. I'll probably finish it up, the main storyline, before we head over to NashCon. But we had that. And then you and I played a game last night. Yep, we did. Very where interesting. I wanted to try out one of my ideas for my NashCon alt list, which was a Legion of Night list, where... Christ. Basically nothing is on the table. It's incredible in how ridiculous, and I love it. You know, it's Legion of Night, right? So for mm-hmm. every unit that you put on the table, you can have a unit in ambush. Yep. In addition to your regular rule where you can have a unit that's summonable in the grave. And then Vargeist are battle line in Legion of Night, and Vargeist can be set up in the sky. I had three, three units, three on. a sum total of 16 models on the table. Yes. Then I deployed the rest of my army in all four corners around yours. On the side of the table over On there. the side of the table, <laughs> out of grave sites, from wherever I wanted. It was a very un-Soulblight way to play the game but it was really rewarding. Yes, and absolutely. it was one of the more fun games that I... Well, to see that come to fruition like that, it worked yeah. the way you expected it to work, because that's what it... It did. It worked... I was planning it to play against shooting lists in particular mm-hmm. as the design of it. Obviously, you know, you've been playing Night Haunt, so I wasn't playing against a shooting army, but I needed to test the ideas mm-hmm. in principle. And sure. Man. It worked very just, well. Very nice. So exciting. It's going to make it very difficult for me to justify some of the other lists I've been kicking around because just the way it all came together, it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. this paired with my Circle City list is the two lists I take to NashCon, I think would be a pretty challenging and fearsome question for for some different combination of lists that are out there. And now, you know, if someone brings a list that my main list is good at playing and, and their other list is one that... My second list is good at playing, but the reverse is not true. Yeah. And we happen to just pull the opposite combination of things. Oh, well. Okay. Like, such is life. I'm 4 and one then instead. Yeah. <laughs> or 4 and 0 and one Cool. Yeah, so I, we played last night, and I brought a, a mystery model again. I don't want to talk about it, cause, but is this very different from my Night Haunt? The other thing that I've been kicking around is whether to take a 30 brick of Chain Rasps or a 20 brick of Herodons. So hopefully we'll get a game in next week where I can try my Herodons out for the first time. And as you suggested, I was pushing models around today and rolling dice and things, and they seem to be not only more survivable, but they certainly seem more punchy in terms of damage delivered. I would hope so. Yeah, we'll see how that works, but it, it was great. It was fun to see you play with your toys, and you're like a little kid the whole time. It was it hilarious. Just, it's uh, so weird. <laughs> it was really cool. Tal, you said you had Did a couple... Still... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Do they still have one-inch reach or two-inch reach now with the updated War Scroll? The Herodons. The is just one inch. Yeah. Just one inch. And okay. the issue is the same thing it is with the Blade Geist now, Tyler, is that you've got those 32 mil bases, so you can't double up yeah. anything. So whatever you can get in base to base. And like with the Giant, I was kind of moving things around to see how I do against a 
giant. I can only get 10 in base to base. It's still 30 attacks plus sixes. You know, you get some extras, but sure. it's very, very limiting because I actually put as many as I could and actually got like 16 in base to base. That would be, yes, mm. I'll do 48 attacks, but I can't do that because of coherency. So, um, right. you know, how do you optimize that and how do you make it work and what do you right. send to support it? What are the support units that are going to make that work and all that good stuff. So, so let's see. So I didn't say much about the game that I played. Yeah, I'm getting another one again. So I've been playing a lot against Gargants. I think that's an interesting test right now. You know, the like the DPS check and just generally all the things that they're doing in the game. We've got a, a couple guys locally that are playing them. So I've been getting a few games in. 2.0, Daughters of Cain, I was able to handle them pretty easily, pretty readily. Mm-hmm. The two games so far have been a lot closer, which is good to see. I think that supports maybe Doc getting toned down a little bit. Again, fewer screens. They still can do, obviously, amazing damage. You know, Mind Razor is not that reliable. One thing I'm thinking about is with Doc, my list right now is two drop, which I think is pretty common with Daughters of Cain. Mm-hmm. But you could certainly go one drop, and mm-hmm. we'll get into it later. But I still think that drop count is quite significant in 3.0. You know, that choice to, as usual, give your opponent the top of one you know, that's not always the answer, but in a lot of cases, that's still the answer. And to then, yeah, play for the double or to play conservatively, give them top of two and then play to finish the game in round three with a double from bottom of two into top of three. It's been interesting, you know, like Cauldron of Blood, is that still a good choice? There was a guy, Matt Robush, who took out Lone Star Open, and mm. I was kind of looking at his list and kind of the, the one that I have based on my, my summer right now, it's Marathi, a double Marathi, Medusa, Hagon Cauldron, Hagnar... Mm. And then 10 Witches, 10 Witches, 10 Snake Bows, a unit of Shadow Stalkers, and 10 Life Takers as another hammer. And mm-hmm. then I've got 85 points that I'm trying to figure out, leaning towards Shackles. I think Shackles is the equivalent of another screen in some ways. You can, so I can tell yeah. you from my experience with the five games at Circle City, mm. Shackles were really good people literally just ran around them or away from yeah. them they'd see yeah. them and they're like okay i'm not going in that direction it just it was like throwing a bouncy ball against the wall people just bounced off it and didn't come close and i wasn't expecting that but it, mm. for 65 point and it did go up quite a bit but for 65 points i think it's a really good investment my list is msu for the most part so i'm not mm. getting a ton of benefit from like life swarm i mean maybe heal the cauldron but you know anything that touches the witch elves they blow up for the most part anything that touches the life takers they'll get blown up snake bows a little more resilient but but you know they should not be getting combat unless something's gone terribly wrong yeah so it's kind of i wasn't entirely sure it seemed like shackles might be the best bet again with that idea mm. that they don't have a lot of screens all those equal it's sort of an army in my mind of basically screens and hammers mm. and you've got to keep your hammers alive as long as you can and uh, to win the game but sure. yeah, yeah, okay, that's good that's to hear fun. though. Yeah, it seemed like yeah. shackles would be pretty enticing. Yeah, for very nice. Okay, and then so that's games played for us. Events. Let's talk about Randathon, man. Amazing success, mm. Brendan. Last year they was, had a goal it, of a oh, thousand. One and they one. hit five, right? No, and they hit seven, seven and change. Okay. And so the bar was set this year by the magical Mr. Mephisto, the most dangerous man in Warhammer, at <laughs> five thousand. The end result was just over ten and a half. Oh my god. Yeah. That yeah. is so amazing. God, that's so wonderful. Yeah, Mef did a great job. There was a lot of really cool prizes donated. There were some there's a lot of very entertaining blocks. Some of the guests hadn't donated and they decided that since they were being guests on it, they felt it was appropriate to add some donations. So there was what started as a pretty solid array of 
prizes to be won just kind of increased and spiraled over mm-hmm. the course of the weekend. So I think it's something that everyone was pretty proud of the result. Considering that's just over 24 hours that people were yeah. that generous in this community. Yeah. That was it's just... It's a uh, crazy list of prizes. I'm actually staring at it because I wanted to save it for future reference going forward. Yeah, you know, Beast Nagabox, Night Hot Lot, a couple Mega Gargans, Vince's painting two different miniatures, one for yeah. Melnick, somehow yeah. he managed to... <laughs> to get one of those. We were um, just talking. Might be some shenanigans there. Uh, <laughs> Call out. It's great. Slanesh lot. It's, yeah, and it was really cool to see so many people yeah, on, during the shows, you I know, was... off the live. And, and thank you guys for what you did with the grand prize, which yeah. was just phenomenal. We're 3,000 points of Soul Blind. Glad to do yeah. it. Yeah. We're happy to do it. I think the one thing that's important to make note of is, not, is it's not just the ten and a half thousand dollars that's raised those prizes are also community generated so many mm-hmm. of the people who are also putting their money towards you know the donations and being eligible for the prizes were also you know making several hundred dollars worth of financial mm-hmm. commitments in terms yeah. of you know the the prize allocation either as themselves yeah. or in partnership with some of their local gaming stores or enterprises that they run themselves you know none of this is sponsored in no. any way shape or form obviously no. a lot of people buy stuff through mini stomp so in that sense it's very informal but you know there's not a big brand sticker on the side of it so this is so right. not only was it ten and a half thousand dollars it was all of the value of the prizes that you know the community put their pool to and how do you put a price on something like you know what vince is doing and in, in <laughs> painting two models that alone has value of hundreds if not thousands of dollars depending yeah. on yeah. what it is that he's doing. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. So, Wonderful news. Yeah, there was a lot of things that could be considered grand prizes in there, and I know yeah. there are a lot of real happy folks, and there were a couple of people who won multiple awards throughout the event, which is like, <laughs> oh, man, on. talk about big winners. Like, that's, <laughs> that's great. Uh, Good stuff. I wanted to give a shout-out to my man, Anthony Castro. We've been working together on this uh, kind of semi-secret terrain project uh, Brendan knows a little bit about that's underway and we'll be announcing at some point in the future but he's do- donating a full table set of terrain I'm not sure who won that one but that's, uh, I think that's that pretty one. amazing yeah Nick True down in Indianapolis yeah oh fantastic yeah, he's, he's an incredible member of the community and providing yeah. terrain for Ragnarok Nashcon so many of us so, so yeah entertainingly enough Nick mm. messaged me today on Facebook and he showed me these pictures of cars that did not know how to use roundabouts in Milwaukee where we are <laughs> and it was just hilarious this one guy like he didn't know to turn off and he literally hit the outside curb and bounced his car and just like it was and I'm going to myself it's not that hard and I, I messaged Nick back like what do these people not understand oh, it was so. just hilarious though but it was it was fun to exchange some notes with him that was fun today Ramcon this yep. weekend I believe that's tomorrow. Yep. So that's, that's wonderful. Mark Ramchek is hosting that again, and he is the big guy for Dragonfall. He's he our is, and that organizer. went up to sixty persons. Yep. So that's very exciting. Then we have Nashcon in two weeks, Brendan. Yes. Yep. And Siege World is that same weekend. Oh, yes, it is. Tyler, you're going to that, right? Yeah, I'm gonna help out Jeff, but yeah, I'm gonna play in it as well. Look wonderful. forward to it. I was a little disappointed only because we had to miss last year, and it was so. Oh, I'm gonna go this year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's the same mm. right nashcon announced its thing signed up for that and then like yeah. two it was like two or three weeks later the announcement for siege world went up and i was like yeah cool awesome checks the weekend <laughs> yeah to be well, fair to jeff he's always fine. had the same day it was that nashcon unfortunately had to move yeah. so hopefully we'll get that we'll get it away next yeah. year 
Yeah. yeah. Brendan, your signature. I saw one of the awards last night, yep. which looked amazing. Yeah, Shout so out to Natasha. Uh, Natasha for getting that all yeah. done. It looked great, the art on it. Uh-huh. But that's about a month away. Just a little bit. I've got the big awards were ordered. They had a mm-hmm. longer lead time, so hopefully I'll be getting those here in the next couple weeks. So. Looking good. And yeah. I'll, I'll finally get to meet you live. Tyler, this will be great. I know, bud. Yeah. So, yeah. So drinks, drinks, lots of drinks. <laughs> yeah. Drinks and talks. We'll, we'll have to get a game in one way or another. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. When are you coming up for it? I can probably come up early. Okay, I was so just going to say, if you come up, make some plans. If yeah. you come up Friday or something, we'll talk between now and then. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm here, so I'm local. So if you you know want to come in early, that'd be great. Good stuff. Then I think that's it, gents, for events yep. right now. And we are going to just move right on to Emperor Lies, and it's all in the details. I mean, what are we, a team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're, we're a time bomb. We're back with Emperor Lies, and this is part three of our... Sigmar 3.0 series, and we're calling it It's All in the Details because we're going to go over, as Brendan stated earlier, some specific things with strategies, tactics, endless spells, battle plans, and then have some hopefully well-informed discussion here. Not hopefully, we are going to have well-informed discussion about what we think all this means and some final thoughts on 3.0. Gents, why don't we start with grand strategies? We've got eight of them. The deal is that you have to pick one, and in terms of competitive play, you have to pick one, and it's the same one that you pick for all five games that you're playing. So whatever you pick, you're stuck with. War Scroll Builder actually has that as a choice. you yep. got to pick it, and it goes and shows up on your list. Why don't we kind of do a little round robin? If, Tyler, you want to go first, talk about the first one, then Brendan, then I'll talk about the next one until we get through the list. So sever the head, Tyler. Yeah, sounds good. And instantly, these are worth three points at the end of the game yes. if you get yours. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty big deal to get in. Sever the head. When the battle ends, you complete the grand strategy if there are no heroes from your opponent's starting army on the battlefield. Now, I tend to think that that's probably not a good choice for a lot of armies. There's a lot of variance with regard to that one particularly compared to some of these others. You know, what happens if you're facing Archeon as the quintessential example, or someone with, you know, multiple fairly resilient heroes or heroes that they can hide, you know, six heroes on the table. It it might be challenging to get all six of those off the table. Mm -hmm. So what do you guys think? I I think you're absolutely right. One of the prevailing themes of the grand strategies I like and the grand strategies I don't like are built around what you can immediately control as the player. And you have absolutely no control over what is in your opponent's list. You hit the nail on the head there with, you know, heroes that cannot be dealt with in Archeon and Gotrek and Marathi Uh and Nagashin, some builds, you know, or Manfred. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh if your list doesn't have the ability to, you know, really reach out and touch these characters early then there's nothing you're going to be able to do about them sure right yep okay yeah yeah there's a bunch of them out there yeah so the next one hold the line when the battle ends you complete this grand strategy if there are any battle line units from your starting army on the battlefield and in the polar opposite to sever the head this is one that i do like in the appropriate context of you know whatever your army is now, there are some where this is not going to make any sense at all because you just took the three absolute min battle line uh-huh. you can get away with <laughs> to invest the remainder of points in everything else. Sure. Something where you have either a lot of battle line units or particularly resilient battle line units, mm-hmm. this can be a no-brainer in some of those instances. So even something like the 
monster trucks, quote unquote, which is Beast Claw Raiders, mm -hmm. where a lot of your army is very difficult to kill battle line units or mega gargants. This is a good and reasonable choice to be taking. Sure. Makes sense. This is usually my choice just because uh -huh. I have plenty of battle line if I want to mm -hmm. uh, in my army. And it's usually nobody gets through everything. They'll get through maybe five out of six, but they won't get that six unit. So I'll end up with my grand strategy. The next one's Vendetta. When the battle ends, you complete this grand strategy if the model chosen to be your opponent's general has been slain, and the model chosen to be your general has not been slain. hate this one. This one is just like, oh, man, I, it, I think it has the same issue. You're talking about, you know, whether you control it or whether your opponent controls it. This is one that's out of your control again. It really yep. is in terms of your opponent's general. It could be one of those big units again. Well, and, and it's it's a two-condition yeah item here yeah. so not only do you have to find a way to go get your opponent's general you have to make sure that your general is not going to be on that same receiving side of things mm -hmm. and chances are if you have a general that's going to be hanging out and hiding away cool that's all well and good mm. but if your opponent is playing i don't know lumineth and they just go pew 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 and then you die like cool you failed this regardless of whether or not mm -hmm. you know you did that but if you invest the points in something that's a big and beefy character well you better hope you don't play Archeon like or Gotrek <laughs> where you can just be turbo murdered but you're not gonna put this character to the side and not you know and be worried about it because you need to win the game first right but by putting yourself at risk of failing the grand strategy you have to make sure that you have enough of a points differential to win the game totally irrespective of, you know, the grand strategy result that you or your opponents are going to... All right. How about dominating presence there, Tyler? Yeah, when the battle ends, you complete this grand strategy if there are more units from your starting army on the battlefield than there are units from your opponent's starting army on the battlefield. So, seemingly on paper, that would interest MSU armies such as potentially Nighthaunt. I'm not sure where Nighthaunt are in, in three at the start of 3.0 here, mm -hmm. if, if MSU is still really interesting or not. But, you know, with the idea that, yeah, maybe you have such an advantage uh, that you can hang on and by the end still have more units. You can play conservative with some of those units. You know, you can have a little fiver unit five cheap units chaff units running around maybe some teleporters you can keep alive i don't think it's as bad as some of the header vendetta but it's closer to them in my mind than certainly hold the line hold the line is absolutely one of the best uh, for a lot of armies yeah. what do you guys think well first of all just to clarify summoning doesn't count here because again it says starting army so it's not stuff that you bring in later right yeah, it doesn't count point. as an addition just to yep. clarify that. Yeah, yep. so to echo Tyler's point here, I agree. I don't think it's as bad as Sever the Head or Vendetta in terms of overall uh, selection here. But chances are, if you're going to be successful in dominating presence, you're probably going to be more successful in taking hold the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like The instances in which those units that are going to be on the battlefield are going to be non-battle line, pretty limited, versus you know some of these other selection choices here. But then also you are incentivized to go super MSU and right now I just don't see list building in that place. I think mm -hmm. a lot of armies have somewhere between 7 and 11 units right now 9 being kind uh. of that weird sweet spot where a lot of people end up outside of any battle regiment selections unless you're planning on taking like 21 units where you know Mm -hmm. that you're just going to outbody them or you know that you're going to be able to remove 
just mm-hmm. so many of your opponent's units that it doesn't matter. But in that same instance, I think you're better just with the other ones. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a weird, you know, between two middling choices kind of a, a selection. And right. why be average when you can be great? Yeah, I think we'll talk about. You know, you ask where Nihon is and that kind of stuff, and I'll certainly give that feedback when we talk about just overall, you know, where things are with 3.0. My initial response to that is I don't think at 2,000 points, Night Haunt is an MSU army. I'm not saying that you're not going to take chain rasts. I'm just saying there's so many things out there now that need you to be able to kill them or disable them or slow them down at some point. So a bunch of units of 10 chain rasts aren't going to do anything for you. They're just not very effective anymore. They might have been much more effective before, but now you just yeah. don't get that return on your investment in terms Especially of points. Especially with, with the coherency rules. Yep. You cover yep. half the overall length. Yep. that you were going to be utilizing before. And that was one of the major incentives of the 10s is all of the lane blocking and funneling yep. that you could do. Yeah. So that's kind of gone away. But all right, uh, how about Beastmaster? Yeah, when the battle ends, you complete this grand strategy if there are any keyworded monsters from your starting army on the battlefield. This is a great choice if you have lots of monsters in your army. <laughs> this is a really crappy choice if you don't have any monsters in your army, Night Haunt. That's correct. So... <laughs> If you have a lot of monsters in your army, all you have to do is have a unit alive. So Beast Claw Raiders, Giants, Terrorgeist, Heavy Lists, Steam Tanks, things like that. And it's the monster keyword. It's not the behemoth battlefield role. Yep. All you got to do is just have one make it. And I think that's a better incentive choice than, say, Vendetta, where... At the end of it, you might be sitting there like, oh, well, I really can't commit the general. Like Some of these monsters are like 180 points, and you go like, <laughs> well, it's not looking great, and I'm just going to send this guy over here, and you're only yeah. playing down you know, 200-ish points for the remainder right. of the game rather than 400 to 800 points down for the remainder of the game. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is just army dependent. Yeah, this one and the next two are entirely composition dependent. Yeah. So the next one is prize strategy. When the sorcery. Battle, uh, prize sorcery. When the battle ends, you complete this grand strategy if there are any wizards from your starting army on the battlefield. And this is great if you have a whole potload of wizards. It's wonderful. If Especially you, if you have a wizard who can't die unless you let them kill them. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't have many wizards, like one or maybe two, yeah, this isn't a great one to pick. You Not should pick you. something else. No. <laughs> yeah, again, very army dependent. Both of these next, those, the last one and this one are you control, you know. So yeah, it, exactly. That's, that's So those are good choices for you. And it's not even you control it over the course of the game. You control it at list right. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right. You control like, what you put in there. That's the best way to do this is you wrote your list and you just said, well, I've got like five monsters. Good luck. Yeah. You know, I've yep. got four monsters. Go ahead. Yeah. See if you can do it. Because there are plenty of armies where you have a couple of monsters, and they're all very difficult to kill. And if your opponent killed them, you probably lost anyways. Yeah, this is definitely a popular choice. Yeah, Beastmaster, Prize, Sorcery, and Hold the Line have been very popular. So... You know, Seraphon... Lumineth, yeah. even Daughters of Cain, like the basic debate in my mind right now with 2k list I'm looking at is between Hold the Line. The 2x10 witches are going to die most games, but can I keep 10 snake bows alive most games? 
you know, again, they mm-hmm. should not have anything getting into them. So then it's a matter of like chip damage slash range damage, unless I've done something dumb, something weird happened and somebody got into them or price sorcery, you know, Marathi and mm-hmm. then like a Medusa because you can potentially hide a Medusa. And yeah, I think this is a very popular choice. Yeah. The only thing with price sorcery though, is its interaction with Lumineth that is going mm. to need to be relevant in the FAQ of the initial yep. release, where right. if it needs to be units with the keyword or if it needs to be models that are wizards. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Because that's the whole crux of the issue with Sentinels and Wardens and a lot of the Venari units is the unit champions are wizards, but the unit is not. Right. So the unit war scroll does not present itself as wizard. Correct. However, there is a wizard. How does that deal with prize sorcery? Sure. So I could see it being ruled either way, and it be a totally reasonable result. So this is one of those places where we as a community either need to set a standard or defer to whatever the result is going to be. But as of right now, it is unclear. The next one is Pillars of Belief. Yeah, when the battle ends, you complete the scratch strategy if there are any priests from your starting army on the battlefield. (laughs) So, you know, we don't have as many armies that run multiple priests. Bone Splitters, May, Daughters of Cain, May, uh, Blades of Corn. Mm-hmm. Does. What else? Yep. Does, yeah. yeah does. <laughs> Absolutely. Anything else combined? Those are the ones that stand out. Fire Slayers, probably. I was thinking I can't of remember. Daughters. You listed Deep that one. Yeah, Deep Kim potentially. But like, I think most of those that I've just mentioned have better options. Bone Splitters, I would think that they would go hold the line. Almost all, certainly. <laughs> And, the, and they'd yeah. even potentially be eligible for dominating presence, depending on if you're right. playing just straight bone splitters. Like, yeah, yeah, they're showing up to the battle with probably, you know, close to, depending on what you use, almost 20 units. Yeah, yeah, 200 plus wounds. Yeah, a lot of those wounds hit battle line. So, yeah, I do not see this being a popular choice. Uh, and even those who could benefit from it, corn uh, is kind of interesting, but I doubt it for corn even. Hmm. So, yeah, I doubt this is going to be taken that often. And the last one is Predator's Domain. When the battle ends, you complete this grand strategy if you control more terrain features than your opponent. And I only like this one because you are probably going to be the only person at the table thinking about controlling <laughs> terrain features. I know if my opponent had picked this and I go, cool, I'm just going to play the game. And they're like, oh, I control these terrain features. And I go, good job, buddy. I won the game. (laughs) I get my 20, you get your three. You made a very weird choice, but you got your grand strategy. Awesome. So you can use it as like the big brain moves and, you know, play a grand strategy that like doesn't really have much to do with the game at this moment in time and get it that way mm-hmm. neat yeah i don't know this one's just kind of weird yeah i think it's a weird choice you can do it and feel okayish about it but ultimately i think you're probably better doing other stuff okay and i have a question for the two of you in terms of just how this works the points this -hmm. is the question so let's say you know we play out all five turns and we both get our grand strategies i got it i lost i won i still get my grand strategy if i accomplished what i was supposed to even if i lost the game Mm -hmm. correct okay yep but now let's say we finish we just decide that at the bottom of three we're going to end the game because Mm -hmm. it's obvious i'm going to lose or you're going to lose at the bottom of three the game ends the battle ends if at the bottom of three 
I have accomplished my, I've lost the game, but I've accomplished my grand strategy then. We've decided to end it. Do I still get my three points? It depends on the pack. Okay. It depends on the event. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, listeners, I'm just, I want to clarify that for people. So it's the TO's decision yes. of how that works. Okay. Yep. How would you decide? I'm ruling it as concessions are you do not score your grand strategy and you do not score any remaining battle tactics or objective points that are eligible for the remainder of the battle. Your opponent, if they are eligible to complete their grand strategy, gets that. They complete all remaining battle tactics for the remainder of the game and score all remaining eligible points. Okay, perfect. Okay. I am looking in my events to de-incentivize concessions. Yeah, that's generally how we played it at a recent local event. Okay, great. Just to clarify, gents. But, but yeah, it absolutely varies. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question. How do we feel about grand strategies overall then? I don't like them. <laughs> it's just fine. Yeah. yeah, okay. I think they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Could you elaborate, Brendan? So I think largely the methodology of battle tactics, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, is a solid solution to secondaries or auxiliaries in tournament play. I think that these are a lot better. But the instances of grand strategies, if your game is decided by that, it wasn't a competitive game. You know, Mm -hmm. it it was just you and your buddy just screwing around. Oh, whoops, didn't kill all your monsters. And I guess, you know, all of my units died. Like, you probably lost that game anyways. And, or, you know, you just weren't playing objective. A good tournament player is never going to lose a grand strategy unless they were totally defeated if it was a close game both players got their grand strategies if one player didn't they lost well before that moment in time that hasn't matched my experience entirely i can see the case for that i agree that in most instances yeah good players that have tailored the list to go after a particular grand strategy in most cases they're going to get the grand strategy yeah, that's going to be a pretty high percentage. I certainly have had competitive games against other good lists and good players. My games have tended to be one of two outcomes so far. Either an army is early dead, uh, sorry, an army is dead early, and the game is decided in the traditional 2.0 fashion, you know, round two or by round three, or it goes really long and it's a close game. And in those, some of those close games, it has come down to the grand strategy. You know, like the last one was Tuesday. I had to run Marathi away to keep her alive in round four five in order to get prize sorcery and if i had not gotten prize sorcery i would have lost that game by two points as opposed to winning it by one just a little bit of nuance that i don't entirely agree to me it's another layer i'm just making faces over here yours is very clear always there's no (laughs) so i think you know it gives you if the game's competitive then to your point tyler when you're talking about the games going long if the game's competitive and you're playing every turn and it's going back and forth then you know one turn one guy's ahead the next turn turn four you know this person's ahead whatever it is top of turn five you still really don't know who's going to win i think that's a great way to make that final decision of who is the winner in terms of points and competitive play is all about points who gets the most points at the end of a game to determine who won who gets the 20 points for the major or the minor or whatever and i also think it differentiates then between ties and majors and minors it helps you get it's one more layer to help differentiate that i don't think it's just totally unnecessary or a bad thing you know it's one more thing you have to think about in this edition is the way that's the thing is i don't think about it at all right i'm not talking in terms of during the game because i agree with you 100 percent. once i decide and i put my lists in and i give them to the to 
I've made my choice. But in terms of getting ready for the event and I choose it, it's one more thing I have to make sure that, you know, when I'm building my lists. I don't even think about it then. Well, and that's you. I look at what my list is and I go, what's the one I'm going to accomplish 99 times out of 100? And I go, that one. Okay. And that's it. And then I show up to my game and if I didn't accomplish it, it's because I lost. And I don't think about it during the game. I agree with that. Tactics are all I think about during the game in terms of these things. I can agree with the point that there is certainly an element of win more with this, you know, to what Brendan just said, that if you're not getting it, well, that means you probably lost. I've probably played six, I don't know, a little over a dozen games, some number over a dozen games so far, 3.0, and I can remember at least three of the games, you know, relatively small percentage, but not zero, of where the grand strategy did have an impact on the game. But yeah, I think the overall point I would agree with, you know, there's too much variance. There are too many that are bad choices of the ones that you're going to choose oriented around your list. Uh, generally, they're too easy to achieve. But you know, there are instances where that's not going to be the case. You know, Melnick, you're a good player. I'm so tired of being discredited <laughs> as as my results and my opinions are is because I'm too good. Oh, no, and no, I didn't say No, 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 Dan you. doesn't say this. Other no. people have said this yeah. in different times and places where, where my results are less legitimate because I am able to carry... This is one of the most insane arguments I've heard is that my results are... And opinions are less legitimate because talent carries the day. So I'm going to give a final word here. Why is that crazy? Like, obviously talent has an enormous impact. You are basically saying that these things, like you have said in 99%, practically 99.9% of cases, you're like making a categorical statement that grant strategies are irrelevant. That's what I'm pushing back on. And so maybe... I can see the point about, yeah, making the talent argument. But but obviously, player skill does have a significant determinative impact. Sure, over the course of the game. I'm going to end this discussion for, because we we could go on a while for this. So what I'm going to say is this. I'm going to get the final word in here. As a host, I'm going to take my (laughs) Pick your spots, play your cards. I'm still going to say that it has a role. But I'm also going to close it out by saying, if this page of the General's Handbook disappears in the fact it's not going to fundamentally change the way we play 3.0 now yeah and i i don't think it's going to disappear no no it's not but i'm saying if it does it's not an essential part of 3.0 and that's what i want to close out with if we talk about what is it and and how important is it to the game the next thing we're going to talk about however i think is absolutely essential to this vision of the game oh yeah let's move on Guys, and let's talk about battle tactics, which just to open it, I just love battle tactics. I love it. I love the fact that every single turn you have to make a choice. It forces you to look at the board, look at your army, look at the situation, which is always fluid. And I think that's really cool because every turn the game changes in some way. And so your decision of which battle tactics to use in which turns changes all the time. You're never going to go into a game, I don't think, other than maybe you know, ferocious advance or something. But but even then, every turn, you're going to look at what exists on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. You're never going to go into the game saying, this is what we're going to do turn one, this is what we're going to do turn two. You're never, ever going to do that. You just aren't. Stick oh, never's a long time, yeah. Dan, and always arrives a lot sooner than you thought it would. Yes, of course. Thank you for that You're quote. welcome. It's very, very unlikely. I would put money on the fact that if everybody that I bet on in a tournament said they were going to do that, I'd win money for everybody I said was not going to do that. I just think it's great that way, that it forces you to be engaged when otherwise you wouldn't have to make that kind of a decision. And I think that's really cool. 
So that's just my opening comment in terms of battle tactics. I love this part of the General's Handbook. This to me is the one spot where I don't think grand strategies have really any significant impact on the result. Battle tactics, the ability to complete the and then counterpose to that, the ability to deny your opponent access mm-hmm. to battle tactics mm-hmm. is huge. Mm-hmm. That will single-handedly win you more games than you mm-hmm. ever thought you would win. Now, there are missions where the battle tactics really do not make a difference. The, either the, the scoring volume is such that you mm-hmm. could basically ignore the battle tactics if you know that you're going to get the late-game objectives and score a million bazillion points, or if you know you're going to get the major and the notion of tie-breaking is unimportant to you. In those instances, yes, sure. But those are limited examples mm-hmm. over the course of the battle plans that we'll cover in part two of this show. These and the decisions in the order you make them in will in many times determine if you win or lose that game. And Brendan, to your point, I can state, and Tyler, you could tell us about your dozen games. I, th- I would say four out of the five games I played at Circle City. That made a difference. It made a difference in my wins. It, it certainly made a difference in my losses. That was the deciding factor in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are huge, and yeah, this is an area of differentiation in, in players' results at tournaments, yeah, particularly on the, the deny point that Brendan made, and yeah, it's one of the main areas that I'm working to get better at, in particular on denying. Yeah, these are, these are generally great. One of the things we were talking about last episode, Tyler, too, is, you know, it's early. It's still early, and a lot of people haven't been to a lot of events yet. Just how do you handle your opponent forgetting your other battle tactics because they are so important? And uh, I, I think when it happens first with somebody, first turn, everything's uh, going on. Yeah, okay. You know what? I'll just say, did you pick your battle tactic? I won't say, hey, you, you forgot. I'm just going to say that. But after that... All bets are off. If you forget, you forget. You lose your points. I'm Uh not going to... Because I think you need to know the rules. You need to remember the rules. And if you forget the rules, there should be a consequence. Dan knows this. Believe me, he knows this. (laughs) Uh, Through experience. And I... Dan has suffered some consequences. Yes, last night would be a couple examples. So if you forget your rules, there should be a consequence. And I'm not saying... You know, especially if you're playing somebody you know or you're grudging somebody, you know, that kind of thing. And you're not shooting for those top tables. Yeah, okay. You give them a break. But if you're playing somebody who you know is just rip-roaring, going to be at the top tables there, no. You know, you forgot. Sorry, buddy. That's it. I'm enjoying playing you, but forget it. You, you forgot. You forgot. Zero points. Yeah, I think... Personally, Tyler's I, not I so know. ruthless. I'm not as, yeah, we've, Brent and I have had this conversation over the years. I've gotten worse in the, the direction of being more increasingly more lenient over the years, mm-hmm. which is not right or wrong. It just, it is what it is. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, so I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to it's this. Kind of just personal preference, yeah. I think you're right. Personal preference. Let's go through these as well, guys. So Tyler, if you want to start it off with the first one. Yeah, Broken Ranks. When you reveal this battle tactic, pick one battle line unit from your opponent's starting army on the battlefield. You complete this battle tactic if that unit is destroyed during this turn. If that unit was destroyed by an attack made by a friendly monster or an ability of a friendly monster, score one additional VP. Yeah, so this is one of a number that has an extra VP available if you do something with a monster. Kind of playing into the importance of them in this edition. Yeah, I think this is a, this is a solid one use this in most of my games. Actually, this is one where it can, you know, to the point we made earlier, the importance of getting all these or denying, you know, you've definitely got opportunities to try to deny 
because you're mm-hmm. going to know, obviously, which battle line unit they picked. So maybe you want they're not in combat, and you've got a chance to rally them, or you've got a chance to plus one save, you know, with all that defense and so on. Or, you know, redeploy a screen in front of them. Like, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this one. How about the next one, Brendan? Conquer. Conquer. When you reveal this battle tactic, pick one objective marker on the battlefield that your opponent controls. You complete this battle tactic if you control that objective marker at the end of this turn. This is one that I really like to use in an instance where my opponent has jumped onto an objective with just, you know, a a little cheapo screen unit to kind of save me some of my other more reliable ones. This is also one of the ones that I like to keep in my pocket from battle rounds three on as well if that opportunity Mm. hasn't presented itself early. As one of those items where I know my path to winning is through that objective, chips to the middle, boys, we're going to go for it all here. This is one that exists for good value throughout the course of the battle, where Broken Ranks, I think, really starts to become eligible, for the most part, in Battle Rounds 2 forward. Now, you can get it in Battle Round 1 in the exact same circumstance where your (laughs) opponent threw out this little wimpy, cheapo 10-man screen unit. And then you've uh-huh. got like this big old mean monster, you know, coming around the corner. Then yeah, get up early on victory points. And a good player is going to be patient and understand that, yes, they surrendered an extra point there. But you have a monster. You have a point that you can surrender in just a minute. The next one, Slay the Warlord. You complete this battle tactic if the model chosen to be your opponent's general is slain during this turn. If that model was destroyed by an attack made by a friendly monster or an ability of a friendly monster, once again, score one additional victory point. I mean, we're in Gur. You know, of course Mm. there's going to be monster stuff. This one, I think, is... Very situational. Very, yeah. and, and again, it's yeah. very army dependent. I mean, if, mm. you know, Archeon's your general, I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to use this one. Pick one of the other seven. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, or even if Marath is your general, that's going to be difficult. Or, you know, Manfred, to your point, Brendan, earlier, I don't have anybody in my list who can't be shot off the board pretty easily. Mm. Even if I take Lady O, which I don't take very often anymore, but even if I take her seven with a four plus save, yeah, somebody's going to shoot her off the board. And if they know they can get their battle tactic, yeah, they're going to go for her. So I think this one, as you said, situational. And again, I think it depends very much on the composition of your army or whether or not your opponent can do something opportunistic with this. Yeah, and that's an interesting point you brought up with Archeon, where your list that you bring can serve as the denial battle tactic Mm. part of this. Mm -hmm. Where Mm. if you have, you know, three very beefy battle line units (laughs) that your opponent is probably never going to get, Broken Ranks is one of the seven that they're probably not going to get. And if they generally plan to have Broken Ranks in their usual arsenal, you have forced a further bad decision on them, you know, before the game has even started and before the pairing has even occurred in some instances, and you have already made your opponents uncomfortable in what their plan is. Um, Very few people are going to be so practiced that, you know, they'll say, ah, yes, I have planned for having this one battle tactic basically not available to me. So, Ferocious Advance, Tyler. Yeah. When you reveal this battle tactic, pick three different units from your starting army on the battlefield. You complete this battle tactic if all of the units you picked run in the following movement phase and finish that run within three inches of each other. If all three of those units are monsters, score one additional VP. This is incredibly popular as a turn one choice (laughs) it's essentially yeah almost the automatic turn one choice you know for multiple reasons it's often the best time to run three units and have them finish within three inches of each other 
because as the game goes on, you know, you have fewer units on the board, you have fewer options to do that. You know, you don't want those units running. You may want them to be charging or doing something, you know, not doing something other than running. And the Metamorphosis spell is nice. If you've got two monsters all in your list, mm, use yeah. the Metamorphosis spell to turn a five to eight wound hero or whatever into a monster so that you can mm. get this. Yep. And one of the things that's important to note here, as well as in some of these other battle tactics, is it requires you to declare what units are going to be achieving this battle tactic. Mm -hmm. So if you run three other units than the ones you declared and they end within three inches of each other, it means nothing. (laughs) If you destroyed a battle line unit in broken ranks that wasn't the one you picked, it means nothing. If you took over an objective that wasn't the one that you picked, it means nothing. (laughs) There is not only that extra layer of picking the correct battle tactic and executing with the unit that, you know, in some cases you're hoping to be, you know, monsters to get the extra point. But you have to bring enough power to the specific location to get the job done. And it's nice that you can't stumble on these. That's what I like to your point, Brendan, that, you know, you have to be very specific and they have very specific requirements. So you can't just accidentally (laughs) get your battle tactic. I mean, you can, but that almost requires more work than the act of intentionality. Right. In terms of, I was just thinking here about what might be pieces in the game that could interrupt your ability to get first advance. So the sequencing-wise, Bellacor and Kairos come to mind Mm. because Mm. Bellacor could Bellacor, one of the units that you chose to ferocious advance, thereby potentially denying their ability to, you know, run or end where they need to, or Kairos could change a dice roll that then messes with your opponent's ability to complete it. Anyway, those are the main two that come to mind. Gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you would think of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not like Kairos, Bellacor, First Prince lists or anything. <laughs> sure. No. <laughs> Next up we have is bring it down. When you reveal this battle tactic, pick one enemy keyworded monster on the battlefield. You complete this battle tactic if that unit is destroyed during this turn. That enemy monster was destroyed by an attack made by a friendly keyword monster or ability by a friendly keyword monster. Score one additional victory point. This one's great because this battle tactic, unlike the rest of them, can be worth up to four points where obviously it's the two that every battle tactic is worth in almost every mission, an extra one for monster-on-monster action, and then an extra one for your one point per battle round of destroying an enemy monster. Mm -hmm. This one's a really good one to get pretty far ahead on points or the act of catching up on somebody who has, you know, completed, you know, a battle tactic more than you at that point in time to bring yourself to even on scoring pace. But you have to have a monster who is capable of doing this right now you can soften the target with something else and finish the job with the monster but that also requires the setup and and not overdoing it with the battle line unit to your point of you know setting it up this is another one that requires some real finesse and some real timing because you have to make sure that you're going to be able to take that monster down you can't target something that's fresh or it still has plenty of wounds you have to something that's struggling something that's really close to death is what you want to target with this otherwise you're really taking a big chance here if you don't yeah. if you don't feel supremely confident that you can push that model over yeah because this is the one that you know finest hour of course comes mm-hmm. into play potentially in terms of sequencing where yeah it's your turn you have to state your battle tactic prior to your opponent stating their heroic action so they pick your monster you then pick mm-hmm. finest hour now i don't know about that tyler because so, the heroic action and battle tactics are both selected at the start of your hero phase yeah start well, the hero phase. are we still playing where 
Brendan, if it's your turn, you have to do all of your start of hero phase prior to me? Or um, that's a good question. This is good. Hero phase, heroic actions. I think that was in early on in the rules. Where... Yeah. They are both specifically start of the hero phase. Yes. The player whose turn is taking place, each player can pick one hero to perform a heroic action, and each player receives one command point if their general is on the battlefield. In terms of heroic actions, a unit with the hero keyword on its war scroll is a hero. At the start of the hero phase, you can carry out one heroic action from the table below with one friendly hero. The effect of the heroic action is carried out in the purposes there. But for actions. some reason, I thought that they had to sequence one after the other there's 1.6.2 simultaneous we're really nerding out here mm. uh, simultaneous no, effects you know the, the simultaneous effects now i'm not sure whether heroic actions would qualify as abilities but simultaneous effects if the effects of two or more abilities would apply at the same time in a turn the player whose turn is taking place applies the effects of their abilities first one at a time in the order they desire their opponent then does the same that's what i was thinking of but now that we're discussing it i'm not sure whether heroic actions would qualify as an ability because it states that starting with the player whose turn is taking place, you do these things, and I would assume that it would sequence next, but I don't think that it's that important. If you can manage to somehow, like, bait your opponent into being like, yeah, I don't know, that battle line unit's looking pretty, you know, pretty rusty. Like, okay, okay. Also, if you know that your hero monster is super wimpy and near death, and you think that they're a target potentially for getting pulled off, I don't know why you wouldn't finest hour or try to heal them, yeah. you know, just totally regardless of what it is that you as the opponents are doing. Sure. Sure. All right. That's an interesting question, though. Yeah. I will right. pretty much ignore this whole idea until it becomes an issue at some point. <laughs> I learned. So I'm expecting it to become an issue at Bruce City Brawl at Tyler's table. Yeah, of course. <laughs> 100%. Oh, that's funny. Okay, let's go to uh, aggressive expansion. When you reveal this battle tactic, pick two objective markers on the battlefield that are not wholly within your territory. You complete this battle tactic if you control both objective markers at the end of this turn. I mean, it speaks for itself. It is very dependent on battle plan. Man, if, you, if you're playing one that has four on the edge, you know, two on the edge of each person's territory, then there's only two that you can go for. <laughs> Those are the two on the other side of the board. But if there's one where you have, like last night we played the one with five, that one's very doable. I mean, you can hit the center and hit one of the sides you know if that's your goal in this particular tactic if you're positioned properly and you have a good idea that you're going to be able to get one or both then you would pick that but again very dependent on battle plans and, i believe and this is one that i think needs clarification in regards to how the actual territories are laid out because theoretically uh -huh. objectives are infinitesimally small singular points on the battlefield correct all right <laughs> and the line of your territory is a infinitely thin line that crosses. This is like calculus, where you it, you know yeah. smaller and smaller and smaller amounts it, until you get to an infinitely small amount. The, these are all values <laughs> that are approaching zero in nature. And stop it! Stop it! Exactly. Are those objectives that are on the line wholly within your territory? If they are both objects of values approaching zero that exist along what is effectively the same plane, understanding that there is an FAQ that already exists that if an objective is 12 inches away from a battlefield edge, meaning that there is also an infinitely small line six inches away from that objective marker that is control, and you can set up wholly within six inches of the edge of the battlefield, you can exist on that plane mm -hmm. that is infinitely thin and exactly six inches away from the objective and have one model that scores on that objective. So... Yeah. My ruling would be if it's on the line, 
it's not wholly within your territory. However, most people at the table are not going to be debating with high-end STEM degrees uh, <laughs> regarding the nature of coplanar, uh, infinitely small and infinitely thin thank you, Isaac units. Yes, thank you. Uh, for, <laughs> yeah, the other thing about this to me is, what's the point then? If you're going to count the two that are on the line of your territory... That you already hold. Then you then it's automatic, then that's the one you're going to pick instead of Ferocious Advance. Sure. Or you're <laughs> going to hold that for later. Yeah, until turn three or four or something when, yeah, of course, I've got both yeah, of these. Yeah, expansion, the one that's right behind me. I've had them for three turns. Yes, uh, I think it, it's kind of intuitive that it should be outside of your territory. Correct. But, right. but it doesn't right. mean you're right. Clarification, but however, <laughs> technically correct. Roll lawyers. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we debated this and we have come to the working conclusion that despite the narrative disconnect with that title, aggressive expansion, the <laughs> precedence in the fact that Brendan just walked us through leans in a pretty clear direction. So yeah. barring another fact, that's how we're playing it right now. Absolutely. All right, why don't you roll us into Monstrous Takeover? Yeah, when you reveal this battle tactic, pick one monster from your starting army on the battlefield. You complete this battle tactic if that monster is contesting an objective marker that you control at the end of this turn, and that objective marker is not contested by an enemy monster. So, the difference between contesting and controlling. Contesting, you just simply need to be there, and of course, controlling... You know, that's pretty obvious. You literally have to control that objective at the end of that turn and then not have an obje- a monster within range, within contesting range of that objective. So if it's normal six inches, there cannot be an enemy monster within six inches of that objective. This is a great one for, say, round two of the vice when I think the objectives move up a little bit, mm-hmm. a little closer toward the middle in round two. Yeah, round one, round two, round four. And then, yeah, so like Ferocious Advance, round one, Monsters Takeover, if you got a monster, round two, to just hop on an objective that you're probably controlling in that game uh, by that point round two. Usually fairly easy to get this one if you're running monsters. You mentioned Metamorphosis before. You, oh, yeah. You could opportunistically turn something into a monster and, and grab it with that. You could. Uh, yep. That's certainly a viable tactic for armies that don't have a whole lot of monsters. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, great point. And then the last one here, Savage Spearhead. You complete this battle tactic if there are two or more units from your starting army wholly within your opponent's territory at the end of this turn. If two or more of those units are monsters, score one additional victory point. Mm-hmm. This one can be kind of difficult to achieve, but if you're playing a very aggressive army or one with teleportation, mm-hmm. it's not so bad. There are going to definitely be some slower armies. My soul blight list, for instance, where my normal soul blight list. <laughs> not if the I'm, one you if played I'm playing, last night. If I am eligible for Good. Savage Spearhead, you have done something wrong. I will take the opportunity to score a battle tactic I very regularly am not going to have the benefit of achieving, mm-hmm. and I will leave the rest of them in my pocket to achieve later because I know I'm likely to be able to go and get those. But yeah, yeah, this is one I obviously with Nighthaunt I regularly pick this one because I'm regularly yeah. dropping at least two or three units behind in my enemy's territory. Mm-hmm. So. I'm not going to say it's easy because if my opponent positions their units right and correctly and so forth, but it's almost as normal a pick for me as Ferocious Advance mm-hmm. because there's going to be some point when those units get dropped. and So it's reliable, and I like it for that reason. And 
you know, like, unfortunately, Flesh of the Chords, you know, with their summoning, they would not be able to benefit if you try to summon your three Quiff Flayers or Tingles, whatever, because it's got to be a starting army only. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I really like these battle tactics. You know, I think there was some concern early on that maybe these are going to be too easy, akin to grand strategies. Mm-hmm. I haven't generally found that to be the case in the games. You know, the community will get better as we go forward collectively and, you know, denying it especially. And it can be a big difference between getting four versus getting all five in a game you know the game might come down to that so yeah i think the studio did a really nice job with these i think there's a good mix of easy medium and difficult Mm -hmm. in them you know dan i know you were laughing about you know people saying i'm going to do this 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 and this here in the battle rounds while i don't necessarily come and say i walk up to the table and sit in my head these are the five i'm doing in this (laughs) order you know, I have one or two that are going to be on the table for battle round one. And then I have about four that I'm typically looking at between two and three. Mm-hmm. And then I have another four that I'm looking at between three and four, which are sometimes overlapping and sometimes the same. And then kind of battle round five ends up being what is the opportunity that remains to me at the end of the game sure. uh, that, that I can go yeah. get. Out of these eight, six of them I feel pretty good about most of the time. Sure. So. Right. As you're playing the game and you see who gets their tactics or who doesn't or what are you getting, it's kind of interesting because it's almost it's another way to gauge who's winning the battle. It really, but you mentioned it too, mm. both of you have. But it really, you know, after turn three, if you see who's gotten their tactics and who hasn't, you're like, ooh man, this I, I see where this is going, and almost yeah. no matter what I do, I'm not going to win this game. So it's yeah. it's kind of interesting how it it acts as a barometer that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because in our game last night, for instance, Dan, now the one battle tactic you prevented yourself from getting. Yes. <laughs> um, but for two straight battle rounds, you did not score a battle tactic. Nope. And the score at the end of battle round two, I'm sure you looked at it very similarly to I what I did. And I went, I can start running away with this yeah. if something doesn't change here real quick. Yep. And it wasn't even about the objectives at that point. It really no. wasn't. Yeah. But that it, battle tactic advantage yes. permitted it to be... A kind of a runaway situation because there was only three points to be scored in terms of objective scoring yes that were non-battle tactics yep and if i've got four that's more than one whole turn of your maximum score ger points aside of just what exists on the table sure wonderful addition yeah to the game so i'm glad we all agree about that next up and the spells. And the spells. And the spells. And we are going to, listeners, only going to go over the ones in the General's Handbook. So these are the kind of generic endless spells. We're going to call them that. Those are the ones we're going to discuss. Obviously, every battle tome has their own and there are others floating around. So this is uh, what we're going to do is uh, in the General's Handbook. Let's just start again. Why don't you hit the first one, Tyler, and we'll just kind of go round robin again, if you would. Poor guest. I don't know how much detail we want to get into with these uh, Whatever spells. you feel is appropriate. I think, I don't know maybe that we have to talk about like the specifics of summoning, but maybe if it's sure. predatory or not, and then ex- the specifics of it. Yeah, it's predatory. And, you know, while we're talking, we should get the points pulled up for these. Let's see. So predatory, prey on fear, units wholly within 12 of this endless spell cannot receive commands in the Battleshock phase. In addition, if a unit fails a Battleshock test wholly within 12 of this endless spell, add D3 to the number of models that flee. That's pretty good. You know, <laughs> a point value dependent, which off the top, I don't know if you guys have got it pulled up yet, what the point value is on this one. Well, you two are online, so I'll rely on Yeah, here we go. To... 
So 65. Okay, it's the okay. same as... So, uh, yeah, quite a few around, around that mark. Pendulum, shackles, you know, not too bad. And it has a threat range, let's see. So summoning range of 12, and then... So you summon it, and at the end of your hero phase, it'll move up to 8. So that's 20 inch, and mm-hmm. then it beacons out 12 inches from there. It's pretty good reach, 32 inches, yeah. That's, yeah, <laughs> one of the best, if I recall, looking at these previously, of all of the, the spells, yeah, in terms of that threat range. Yeah, I mean, it's you're going to build a list around this, generally, mm-hmm. and there certainly are some lists that can lean into anti-bravery, uh, bravery bombing, particularly now that you know we're not getting unless we're Skaven, plus one per 10 models, we're not able to <laughs> double tap or, you know, multi-tap inspiring presence. We can only do that, as far as I know, all, all armies in the game once at the end, you know, in a Battleshock phase for one unit. I haven't played around with this one. I haven't heard a lot about it, but it strikes me as intriguing. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's not, you know, I, I don't think it's like it's an obvious take, but uh, I could definitely see some folks getting some value out of it. Yeah, so next up is the Aether Void Pendulum. It is uh, predatory and it moves in a straight line to 8 inches. No longer is it the Scourge of Marathi. So after it has moved, you roll a dice for each unit that has models underneath it or that ended within 1 inch of it. On a 2-up, the unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. So it's a reduction in damage, but you are also doing damage more frequently. And the range to, you know, your point, the last one was 32 inches. This one basically is, if you add the 6, the 8, it's 15 inches, if you kind of add up all the numbers. Yeah, it's casting value 5, so it's, you know, easier. I think it used to be a 6. I've been thinking about this one. I haven't used it yet. used to use it quite a bit in Dock, uh, partly thematic. Partly it was it was great with Marathi Kane, you know, mirror dance to teleport her, get her in front of your opponent's line, send Pendulum with D6 Mortal Wounds through your opponent uh, early doors. That did some work in some of the games in 2.0 with a caster value of 5, so you could potentially, you know, like if you've got a way to teleport or get a, a caster, particularly a caster with good casting bonuses up the field, get in your opponent's face, or as a response to a, an alpha strike, you know, you cast it in your turn, then your opponent's turn, you maybe dispel it, which then denies your opponent the chance to dispel it at the start of your next hero phase. So you dispel it in their hero phase, and then you recast it when your next turn comes around. So I could see that being useful. You lose out on the potential double tap, but again, it's kind of another one of those that strikes me as not necessarily obvious, but I could certainly see some potential value from it. The next one is Cogs. We have Mechanisms of Time. It has a casting value of 6. When the endless spell is set up, the commanding player must decide if it's going to increase or decrease the flow of time. If you increase the flow of time, add 1 to charge rolls for units wholly within 18 of this endless spell. If it's decreasing the flow of time, wizards can attempt to cast one extra spell in their commanding player's hero phase when they are within 6 inches, within, not wholly within, 6 inches of this endless spell. At the start of the hero phase, if there is a friendly wizard within 6 inches of this endless spell, the player whose turn it is taking place can change whether this endless spell is increasing or decreasing the flow of time just as i look at this the increasing the flow of time i know an inch can make a difference i know people fail charges by an inch but i just don't know that that's really useful considering the other thing you can do which is can attempt to cast one extra spell that's pretty powerful especially for armies that don't have a lot of casters so this certainly is an option if you can get your one cast wizard to cast two spells Uh, i think of my guardian right away Um, Mm -hmm. normally i'm going to cast spectral lure i mean that's just a given to keep a units alive and bring models back but if i could cast shade mist in addition to that that would be Mm -hmm. really nice because i can never do both so it's very situational for me whether i can get 
that shade mist off and that can make a huge difference. Minus one to uh, wound something is a pretty big deal in this game. I don't know. Points-wise, what do we got? you got it pulled up. I don't know. Yeah, they're 45. Yeah, so it's it's reasonable, but it doesn't move either. So this isn't predatory. It does not move. So you got to be really careful where you put this. So that's another issue as placement, I think, when you're considering this. Yeah, and the high-end question on this is, how does this interact with Lumineth, as is all things with the wizard yeah. keyword? Right. You know, are these units that have keyworded wizards in it but do not have the wizard keyword in the unit scroll... How does that interact with that particular item? Because while, you know, it is something that can help your wizard get up to a higher cast, it can take very good casting armies and turn them into magic dominant casting armies. If you have three units within, you know, to your point of Lumineth, if you have three units with wizards within six inches, what do they all get to cast? Like potentially. Wow. And And if you are already the two casting sub faction, now three now you're talking about nine casting attempts across three units. That is just insanity. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. Right. That's a very, you know, average starting ground. You know, six is six casting attempts is pretty good. Nine is pushing it, and then that's and then there's the rest of your army that's going to have the remainder of their casting attempts on the table. Yeah. So we'll see. I hope we get an answer. We better get an answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah for my money, among the malign sorcery and forbidden power, endless spells. This one, you know, not saying anything new here. This one stands out as the most problematic relative to its current point value. For example, in Zinch, it is really turning Zinch on in a big way right now. You know, we're seeing it, this with some of the early door event lists with Zinch. You know, outside of the Host Arcanum, Archeon, and Kairos, Buddy, Buddy oh. Cop running around. Even, even it probably even has it within that. But yeah, a lot of armies are leveraging cogs at 45 points right now, and it just strikes me as being out of bounds at that point value. So, Tyler, Emerald Life Swarm. Yeah, this is a good one. Has a setup, a custom value of six, and a setup of six, and then it is predatory. It moves eight, so 14 inches. And then after you set it up, after it's moved, commanding player picks one unit within one inch of it. You can heal up to D3 wounds allocated to that unit. Or if no wounds have been allocated to that unit, they can return a number of slain models to the unit that have a combined wound characteristic of D3 or less. So like if you got a Kurnoth Hunter that has two wounds on it, you could heal D3 wounds. Or if you have a unit of skeletons, you could re- mm-hmm. you know one wound models, yeah. so you could return up to D3. Yeah, it's great because you can... Potentially double tap it, you know, casting value of six, so kind of right at the average in terms of dispel. You need a seven to dispel it if you don't have any bonuses. I think it is 65, 60 points for everyone life swarm, so pretty good point value. I've been seeing this in quite a few lists. Yeah, it's good for helping, you know, double tap healing on heroes, monster heroes. You do a heroic recovery, mm-hmm. then you tap with everyone life swarm. Maybe you double tap again if it's still up. So it's really good. And it's movable. This overcomes the issue of not being predatory so you can move it where you need to move it this one at first i was like i'm reading it says you can heal up to d3 wounds i'm like well that doesn't help me i want to be able Uh. to bring bodies back but then i keep reading and it's like oh i can do that because what's weird if i recall i was looking through the endless spells for night haunt and the hourglass the crazy hourglass strangely enough only heals d3 wounds it doesn't say that you can return models. And that's weird that 
Life Swarm would give you that, but something in the Nighthaunt list wouldn't. So huh. this is something I definitely would consider because to your point, you know, for example, coaches already healed D3 and now they're going to be healing 2D3. That's really good uh, to keep yeah. them in the battle or, you know, a unit of 20, whatever it is, you can bring 2D3 back. Yeah, give it to me. That'd be great. For 60 points, that seems worthwhile. I watched a Season of War Battle Report, a really great YouTube channel, the other day, and he was rocking the Lumineth favorite 30 Sentinels that you can do now, and his opponent kept going after them. I think it was a Caradron versus Lumineth, kept going after them, trying to get that unit wiped off the board, and he couldn't quite do it. And he brought back around 20 Sentinels in that oh, one unit geez. through Emerald Life Swarm, Double Tapping, and Rally. It was pretty nuts. Gross. Wow. Gross is right. Uh, how about those Geminids? Yeah, so the Geminids are 80 points nowadays. They're actually pretty good for those mm-hmm. 80 points. Probably a little costly on them, but what they do can be pretty all right. So casting value of a six, so that was brought down. A nine-inch range, they have to be within six inches of each other, and then a movement of eight while the parts of it remain within six inches of each other. So after it's moved, uh, you roll a dice for each unit that has any models that it passed across for each other unit that is within one inch of it at the end of its move. On a two-up, that unit suffers one mortal wound. In addition, if a mortal wound caused by this ability is allocated to a unit, that unit cannot issue or receive commands until the start of the next combat phase. Ouch. So when you think about control of an endless spell and the movement of it that occurs at the end of the hero phase, you would not be able to redeploy, you would not be able to all-out defense, and you would not be able to unleash hell with any of the units that had come across the Geminids, which if you're looking to set up a charge into a shooting army... This is not a bad thing because yeah. you can turn off, you know, on 10 or 15 bow snakes, the ability to do one of the things that is a significant purchase item on them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. And on the other side of, you know, Doc, I've been thinking about this one as well. To turn off Unleash Hell, Doc is a combat army or, you know, combined armies now, combined arms army now with the, the snake bows. But like 10 life takers will melt to any decent unleash hell or you potentially lose a fair number of your life takers and everyone really hurts with that unit that hits incredibly hard but but dies to anything so yeah maybe sending in geminids to turn off unleash hell then sending in the life takers anyway little yeah little combos like that i'm starting to see geminids a little bit it does seem maybe a little high but not too overpriced for what it can do let's move on to malevolent maelstrom it has a summoning value of five it's predatory it can move eight, so range of six, that's 14 inches so far. When this end of the spell is set up, place a D6 beside it with the one facing up. Each time a spell is successfully cast by a unit within 12 of this spell and not unbound, after the effects of that spell have been removed, increase the value of the dice besides the end of the spell by one to a maximum of six. In addition, each time a model is slain within 12 inches of this end of the spell, increase the value of the dice besides by one up to a maximum of six, of course. At the end of the combat phase, if this endless spell is on the battlefield, roll a die and add the value of the dice besides this endless spell on a 10-up. Each unit within 12 inches of this endless spell suffers D3 mortal wounds. And then this endless spell is removed from play. What do you think, Jess? A lot of words. Uh, yeah. Too many words. Yeah, too many words. Yeah. For 65 <laughs> points. Meh. Nah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. You can use it to go pull off the last bit of wounds on some heroes hanging out in the back, but at 65 points, how does that impact your list construction? Sure. 
Right. What decisions are you making with its inclusion? And just as important to your point, Brendan, is how else could you spend that 65 points on endless spells? What other endless spells might be worth more while? And even when it's fully charged, it only detonates on a four up. Yep. Yep, you only got it's not. It's not hard to get it to that fully charged point. How many games have you played where you feel like you can't buy, you know, four, five, or a six? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's too expensive for the yeah the variance and the challenge of getting it to go off in a good spot. That too many variables that are at play there. All right, Tyler, you're up. Yeah, prismatic palisade. This one's easy. So <laughs> yeah, it's got a casting value of five and a range of six. And this one is not predatory. Visibility between two models is blocked if a straight line drawn between the closest points of the two models passes across this endless spell. So, yeah, that is essentially how it has always worked. And it is, you know, it's got a pretty good size footprint. I can't remember the width exactly, but it's pretty good. The Palisade is 40 points, so not too bad. I haven't seen this in too many lists yet, but what do you guys think? I think it lost one of the big things in being a lane blocker in that everything can move across endless spells now. Yeah, good point. And that's one of the things that Gravetide lost as well. Yeah. Uh, now you still have to be able to, you know, clear it, obviously. Chucking this down for, you know, whatever the 40 points it was before and just going, cool, you can't get across this part of the board unless you dispel it. So have fun. Right. <laughs> you know, it's still good. It's still a way to utilize anti-shooting technology to protect key yep. pieces and yep. you know the benefit then is you can you know go through it to get to the other side and to get to your target i'm sure it'll find value it's just maybe it's lost in the it's not the way i used to think about it yeah. kind of bucket yeah my daughters came by us here because i'm practicing with the army you know live takers again die to everything but I think I could do certainly three by three with a dangler at the end, uh, yeah, unit of 10 that is, or probably even a two by five, stick them behind a palisade in front of them to at least turn off shooting directly in front of them. That would be very valuable to me as a way to keep that unit alive other than sentinels or anything else that ignores line of sight, you know, traditional, you know, actually playing the game in the right way. <laughs> but, yeah, but who wants to do that? Exactly. <laughs> if you can roll up to a game of Warhammer and your opponent plays Warhammer and you're not playing Warhammer, <laughs> I think we all know who wins that play. Uh, it's the it guy is. not playing Warhammer. That's... <laughs> yeah. All right. Next up is the Purple Sun of Shaish. It's a summoning casting value of eight, so still a beefy boy. Range of six inches on the summon, and then it moves eight inches as predatory. Now, at the end of the hero phase, before determining control of a predatory endless spell, roll a dice for this endless spell, and on a five-up, this endless spell becomes wild for the rest of the battle. Do not roll for it again. Mm -hmm. After it has been moved, roll a dice for each unit that has any models it passed across, and for each other unit that is within one inch of the end of on its move. On a one, nothing happens. On a two to five, that unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. And on a six, that unit suffers D6. You know, it's not the horde buster it used to be, but now it's also more useful against heroes in a pretty more reliable way. The threat of it going wild is lore-friendly and thematic, but makes its purchase at 70 points kind of a non-starter, unless you are looking to just chuck it in the back line of your opponent and go, let's just see what happens here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. I think if you got a way to teleport a hero wizard to, yeah, chuck it, chuck it deep. Otherwise, no, like no competitive player is going to, you know, it, all of us. Chuck it, bleep it. Yeah. 
All right. Quicksilver Swords. I just like the model, and I actually like I like this one. It's casting value of six. It's predatory. moves eight. After the Sendless Spell is moved, the commanding player can pick one unit that has any models it passed across and roll 12 dice for each six, one mortal wound. In addition, ward rolls cannot be made for mortal wounds caused by this ability. That's good. Neat. And essentially, like mathematically, this is equivalent to a D3. I mean, you're going to get two mortals out of this, again, mathematically. On average, yes. And on average, you're going to get two out of a D3. So if you like the fact that you're going to get, you know, be able to roll a D3 for something, that's great. That's cool. And you can pick one unit. You know, it's it's all right. Uh, I don't know how many points it is, but... Yeah, that's the problem, Dan. I mean, to me, this might be the biggest disconnect between the rolls and the point value. It's 90 freaking points. That's insane. That's way too many. That's twice what it should be worth. Yeah, if, it just yeah, is. Not, absolutely. <laughs> I think they probably did that because you know ward rolls can't be made for mortal wounds caused by this ability. Okay, I get a six up ward save. Like really, right. you're charging me an extra thirty or forty points for this thing because I can roll sixes. Now, Dan, you could roll twelve sixes. <laughs> Have you thought about that? Of course, I could. It's possible. God, Yahtzee, man. <laughs> Super Yahtzee. <laughs> Double Yahtzee. Double Uh, secret Yahtzee probation. Oh, man. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the big Jaws. Ravenix, Nash, and Jaws. Love this model. So it's got a cast value of 6 and a range of 6, and then random value up to 3d6 with the predatory. (laughs) It's crazy. So interesting. After this endless spell has moved, the commanding player can pick one unit that has any models that pass across and roll a number of dice equal to the roll that was made for the move. For each six, that unit suffers one mortal wound. So we're looking at a point value of 55. So Mm. that's better compared to the swords. We're looking at, uh, say, eight, 11 dice, maybe 12 dice. On average, yeah. your average is going to be ten and a half. Yeah, um, eleven is still two on average. Yeah, just it's going to be just below two on your expected averages. But if you spike a high movement, you can spike a high roll in the same way that you can roll low and get <laughs> you know zero on your new expected averages. But averages yep. to averages, you're still looking at just below two. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly better than swords, which isn't saying much. I would still not take this, and I doubt many people would. Yeah, It's just fun to think, like you said, the model is so cool looking, and yeah. it's fun to think of, against some players, just the psychological value of them having this amongst a bunch of their models mm. would be fun. <laughs> just even against you, you know, if you've got this thing running around, it's just kind of, it's a little bit disconcerting, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it certainly used to hold some value in 2.0, I mean, with the Mortal Wounds it could do, and then also the fact that you could not move across it and it had a pretty big base. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I played a number of games, yeah, where, where that came into play, but... The oh, yeah. Soul Snare Shackles. And now we got a winner. And I know this is 65. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. The, it's in my list. One of the clear and most obvious winners of the day. It is a... No longer like a string of points. It's now a blob. Cast on a seven, and you set the first one up wholly within 12 inches of the caster, and then the other three have to be wholly within three inches of each other, mm-hmm. which ends up yeah. meaning that it ends up just being a 
Like, like a, a triangle of bases. Yeah. yeah, it's about five inches across if you space it. I think they'd be better served in just releasing like a redo of the shackles where it is just on a bigger base. Mm-hmm. All three of the little shackle arms mm-hmm. are on a bigger textured base and put the whole base down wholly within 12 inches. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That works. Yeah. And then bound for the great oubliette, units within six inches of this endless spell cannot run or attempt to charge. In addition, at the start of the movement phase, roll a dice for each unit within six inches of this endless spell. On a six, that unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. Now, the thing about this is, is that you can move outside of the range of being unable to charge just as well as you can run from outside of the range, end up in the bubble, and then in the next turn, move out of the bubble and make the charge. Or if you're zombies, you don't care and you just pile on six inches and then you were never going to charge to begin with. (laughs) This to me is, again, just kind of like we talked about with COGS, placement is so important. You know, getting it at that just that optimal distance so that if somebody moves away so that they can get their charge off, if you have them too close, it won't matter. And if you... If you have it at just the right distance, it doesn't matter if they move away because they're going to have to move away six inches. They won't be able to make their charge, you know, that kind of a thing. It's really important where you put this. I think the seven is challenging for a lot of armies, especially those that don't have the ability to enhance their spellcasting. Seven's still an average, but I've rolled less than seven a lot more than I've rolled seven or greater. So, you know, but again, you take it. If it works out, and it, as I've mentioned earlier, and even last episode, it's worked well for me. To your point, both of you, it is a winner. Um, if you get it off, it's powerful in terms of yeah. influencing your opponent's decisions. Right. So, yeah. yeah, and that seven on the other side, it makes it harder to dispel, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah if you don't have a spell down. Uh, in your army, then yeah, you may not be able to get it off the board when you really want to, like in your hero phase before you aim to charge where it was. So, yeah, yeah, really, really interested in trying it out this weekend for the first time. Great. Well, I'm anxious to hear how you do. All right, uh, back to you, Tyler. Back to me? Okay. Suffocating Grave Tide. We've got a cast value of six. This is another one of those, like, prismatic palisades, kind of the, the wide ones. Cast value of six, range of six, predatory, moves up to eight. So 14-inch threat there. After this endless spell has moved, for each unit that has any models that pass across, each unit, that's really interesting, has any models that pass across, roll a number of dice equal to the number of models in that unit. For each six, that unit suffers one mortal wound. You know, I had missed that each unit the first time we did this on Warmer Weekly. I was thinking that this was one unit you pick. That's pretty cool. It's 50 points, and the thing that really limits it is its starting location. Having to be wholly within six inches of the caster is generally not a very large space. Moving eight inches past that, but knowing that you get to move it twice per battle round really is going to put you in a pretty good spot. This is, I think, a criminally underlooked yeah. spell. This is standing out. Yeah, now, going through these again. <laughs> it, it only doesn't get play if the meta ends up in a place where units are not very large, you sure. have a lot of monsters, or you're going to be able to be in large areas. But I know as a Gravelord player, if I saw that my opponent had this, I would go, I need to make it a priority to try and get rid of this regularly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and at 50, you know, you're still getting some value out of it because you're costing, all is equal, you're costing your opponent a cast, which, you know, will should be some value. Yeah, it's kind of another one of those, if you have a way to get a hero up the field, you could 
you know, quickly start doing some work with this. It, it does have that sort of wide base, so you may be in situations where it could be difficult to get it to tap multiple units, but maybe not. Uh, yeah, all right, I'm going to have to look at trying this one out. Uh, th I had totally missed the each unit. I think that really helps turn it on. A lot of us thought we were going to be in you know, more of an MSU style mm -hmm. with 3.0, and we haven't, in my mind, we've seen certainly monsters, but we're also still seeing a lot of these big units run around because there's, there's quite a bit of incentive to go big with some of these units. Mm -hmm. Next up is the Burning Head, which is basically just old, new arcane bolts. <laughs> Throw the grenade, man. Yeah, it's... casting value of a 7, set it up whole within 6 inches. It's predatory with an 8-inch move, but you're going to find that that actually kind of doesn't matter. After this endless spell has moved, if any units are within 1 inch of it, roll a dice for each unit within 1 inch. On a 2-up, that unit suffers D3 mortal wounds, and then this endless spell is, is removed. For me, the casting value is pretty high for what you're getting. It is only 20 points. I mean... Good gosh. Yeah. You know, if you can't fit 20 points in your list, you right. need to think about that. It's disposable. It's quick. It does, though, take up a casting slot. So if you don't have a plethora of ability to cast spells, then this would not be a good take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you have a wizard who doesn't know what they're doing with their spells because you have so many casting attempts, fine. If you are playing a list where every casting attempt is precious and valuable, what are you doing? <laughs> sure. It's true. Oh, yeah. Well, the flexibility. And take the enhancement where all your guys know a different spell. Like, Yeah, I think it's I guess hard for a lot of armies to plug and play with this. Yeah, I mean, the ones that you think naturally would be attracted to it, Zinch, Luminous, Seraphon, they often have those three endless spell slots already allocated, you know, like Cogs and Spell Portal or whatever it might be. The same with Sylvaneth. You know, Sylvaneth now has really got turned on more in the in the spell department. I think they're, they've got a legitimate spell dom in the Warsong Revenant, particularly in all So good. That, it's, yeah, that like, unit is just bonkers. Uh, yeah, like, folks, if you think Sylvaneth are still bad, you've got another thing coming. That army has been turned on in a lot of ways with this new edition. And, but anyway, you know, they have at least four of the three slots already sort of predetermined like they've got four existing really good options in spice from hive the eventual skull root mm. d6 mortal wounds over multiple units and then of course cogs and spell portal so yeah it's, it's good point value but you know we'll see it here and there next we have spell portal umbral spell portal has a casting value of five range of 18 inches so once per turn if a wizard successfully casts a spell within one inch of Cast a spell within one inch of this endless spell. The range, visibility, and effect of the spell can be measured from the endless spell instead of the caster. In addition, once per turn, when a predatory endless spell within six inches of this endless spell is picked to move, the commanding player of that predatory endless spell can remove it from the battlefield and set it up again within six inches of the other part of the endless spell. Predatory endless spell set up in this manner does not count as having moved, but it cannot be picked to move again in the same phase. What do you guys think? I mean, the spell portal is a must-take for some armies, uh, just uh -huh. in terms of being able to add all of that distance to the spell, or in the case of Teclis, provide a single locus point in which you can just blast away on your super mortal wound of doom spell. Or, you know, Nagash with Hand of Dust has been a just an absolute classic through all of uh -huh. 2.0, and it gets to continue here in 3. I, the clarification language around the predatory endless spells is, you know, kind of what exists in the FAQs. And at least this is specific and exacting. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's still 70 points, same as it was in 2.0. You lose an inch, you know, there used to be a janky thing you could do to get, a, to get an extra inch, now it's wholly within 18, but... Yep, just as good for a lot of existing lists. Um, this is the one I was most surprised by, that we didn't see more change with this one, because it was having uh, a meaningful impact on the game uh, in a number of ways. And <laughs> it's quite... Mm, you, you can certainly abuse it, and I think some of us would say it is abusive in certain contexts, like the Technado. And But yeah, it's still a thing. Soul Scream Bridge, who's up? Am I up? You're up. Yep, you're up. Soul Scream Bridge, this is also retaining its value in certain lists. So Bridge is, you know, it's got two parts to it. Casting value of six, range of 18. You set at a poly within range of the caster. At the start of the movement phase, the player whose turn is taking place can remove one friendly unit that is wholly within six inches of a part of this endless spell from the battlefield and set it up again wholly within six inches of the other part of the endless spell and more than nine inches from all enemy units. A unit cannot be removed and set up again in this way more than once per phase and a unit removed and set up again in this way cannot make a normal move or run in the same phase so one change that we've had to this was previously however much of your army however many units you could put around your bridge you could move them but now you're limited to one unit thankfully i think that's a nice little change we're looking at 70 points for this one i think it used to be 100 points so got toned down a little bit, but you know we're still seeing, of course, maybe the most classic Soul Screen Bridge play in Cities of Sigmar were the thirty Iron Drakes, and that's you know we're still seeing that. Yeah, that uh, and Storm Friends. Friends. Both, you know that list is still very real. So yeah, you know I guess it's nice that those players didn't have to make any changes to what they <laughs> had to play. I don't know. I haven't decided how I feel about that. Sure, it's another one I wish we would have had toned down a little bit more yeah for some of those reasons but yeah i guess you can't protect those units anymore so right big winner well that's not true you can just move things in front of them oh sure yeah you just can't bridge them so next up the shards of valagar using this with the shackles will mean that mm. you don't have friends it's true so the spell has two parts it has a casting value of a five oh, with a range God, of 18 yes. if you successfully cast set up the parts of the endless spell wholly within 12 inches of each other and wholly within 18 inches. It is a predatory endless spell uh, where you remove one of its parts and set it up again wholly within 12 inches of the other parts. Before we get to what it does, the shards are 70 points, so keep this in mind. So pairing that with shackles is a sizable investment at 135 points, but remember that the shackles creates a bubble of cannot run and cannot charge. So keep that in mind right in your head. Hold that right there just for a little bit. Ensnaring Soul Drain, after this endless spell has moved, draw a straight line between the closest points of each part of this endless spell. Each unit that has any models passed across this line is ensnared until the end of that turn. Have the move characteristic of a unit that is ensnared. In addition, a unit that is ensnared cannot fly. So that super big scary mega gargant that was, you know, coming your way, you toss the shackles down and you go, here's a bubble of can't run and charge. And they're like, that's no problem. You know, I'll just get out of it next turn. You're like, oh, also here are the shards. And now if you're a gatebreaker, you move six. If you're a war stomper, you're move five. And if you're a cracking eater, you're move five and a half. So now it's going to take you three turns to get out of this bubble. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it because most of your armies really don't have a wizard. And are you really going to heroic action to try and be the magical unbinder of or the speller of endless spells when you need to heal or finest hour i don't think so 
And it's certainly yeah. not a guarantee, especially on shackles. Now, the shards, it's a lot easier. It's a casting value of a five. But there you go. Gross and dumb. Yeah. If your list can't do anything about giants naturally, pairing these two endless spells together will give you a better chance at doing so. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's a good call. Pew. Sometimes I got good ideas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. The last one is Lushan the Soul Seeker. This is... Uh, Scooty McBoat, man. Scooty McBoat, man. There you go. Been a long time since we've seen him. Casting value of six. Predatory. Can move up to 18. Before the commanding player moves the endless spell, they can pick one friendly wizard wholly within three inches of this endless spell. Wholly within. Move that wizard from the battlefield after this endless spell has moved. Set that wizard up wholly within three inches of this endless spell and more than nine inches from all enemy unit. After that wizard has been set up, it suffers one mortal wound. The wizard cannot make a normal move or run in the following movement phase. Okay? Teleporty wizards. Yeah. At a cost. Yeah. Most wizards are... Five, six. Yeah, and they're also a lot slower than 18 inches in mm-hmm. terms of movement. So yeah. if you are in desperate need of relocating yourself, sure. But I don't know that it's something you're really going to do too much. It's 55 points, so like the cost isn't the issue. It's just it's only wizards. And also, what a terrific interaction issue this has with Lumineth. So... Oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that. Is a wizard a wizard? That's a a big question. Don't know. Yeah, I mean, I could see somebody figuring out a big brain play with this. Uh, Off the top, I'm not sure what it would be. Certainly Marathi is an interesting option, but you've already got Mirdan's spell with Doc. That's giving you a good shot at teleporting Marathi and another hero like your Medusa. So, you know, without taking the wound and without putting the 50, what are, what are we looking at here for this one? 55 points mm-hmm. into the, the ferryman. Yeah, maybe there's a play out there. I haven't heard much, haven't seen this in any list yet or heard anything yet, but maybe somebody will yeah. come with something cool. If Lumineth players are going to be able to use it for their units, you are absolutely 900% going to see 30 bricks of wardens getting tossed on the ferry and then set up in Shining Company 18 inches away from their battle line. Yeah, I'm not sure you could do 30, 32 mils. You could do a sizable, you could certainly do at least 20. Well, it, Maybe you could have it, to look it, at it. It depends, right? Because only the wizard is the unit champion who's wholly within three uh, inches. So, getting into extra jank zone here. Yeah, yeah. The, the maximum angle shot on this one is <laughs> the unit champion only has to be within three inches of the soul seeker. If I'm uh, interpreting this in the most inappropriate way, and then you get to teleport all 30 of the wardens just... Who aren't wizards. Who The, the rest of the unit isn't nope. a wizard. No. Nope. But there's a wizard there. And per the FAQ, you get to allocate that mortal wound to not the unit champion for some unknowable reason. There's that. Hooray for endless spells, I think. So overall, we're good with endless spells. Yeah. Well, the ones in the book here, the every faction in their FAQ got an update to their endless spells that are mm-hmm. in the same way where they describe yeah. a, a nature of these same things. Your rules have likely changed, as you saw on almost all of these. At least some amount of specifics is different now than it was before. If you were using an endless spell before, you are definitely going to want to, one, double check on the points, and two, double check on what it does right now. I was going off of the Zinch page you know, looking at the points for it. And the Demonic Simulacrum is 90 points. And now I need to go look at what that does because Ugh. I don't remember the Demonic Simulacrum doing hardly anything. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, I think they did a pretty good job, Dan. Yeah, with the, with the endless spells. On. I mean, there's some obvious misses, but on the whole, I think the majority can find their way into list. 
So yeah, pretty good overall. Gentlemen, we're going to take a break here. We've been going for a while. And what I'd like to do when we come back, because we've got 12 battle plans, if I'm not mistaken, what I think we're going to do for the sake of our listeners is we're each going to pick two and Uh kind of go round robin that way rather than covering all of them. Quick, pick uh, the most interesting ones. Yeah, and uh, we will do that. And then everyone pick the vice. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> then after that, we're going to go do our general discussion and final thoughts on 3.0. So we will be right back, listeners, with that, and uh, hang in there. Here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm that it's caused me. Listeners, we're going to jump back in, and we've decided we're going to pick each pick two of our favorites. We're not going to tell each other what it is. We're just going to go round robin again and start with our guest, Tyler. So, Tyler, what is one of your picks? Let's go with Feral Foray. Mm. So, this is one of the two that has six objectives. It is the updated Scorched Earth. We have three objectives in the respective territories. We are more than nine away from each other, so we've got 18-inch Deadman Zone. You can raid objectives. So from the start of the second battle round, after you score victory points, you can raid one objective that you control that is wholly within your opponent's territory and that is within one inch of a friendly unit. If you do so, you get an additional VP, and then you like Scorched Earth, you remove the objective from play, but you cannot raid more than one objective per turn. So, you know, Scorched Earth, you used to be able to burn multiple objectives. I really like that change. And then you also have the traditional 3.0 battle plan scoring orientation. Score one VP if you control an objective, score another if you control two, score another if you control more than your opponent, and then of course two points if you get your battle tactic for that turn. really love this one. I think we have so many scenarios with three objectives, usually right in the middle. In a meta, at least at the start of 3.0 right now, with these hero monsters or, you know, that are difficult to take down, or certain units like Varengard that are very difficult to take down. You know, Vince has this concept, Vince and Tom, this concept power per square inch. So you have a smaller footprint in terms of objective play in a lot of these missions where Archeon, you're going to have a harder time getting away from him or a Marathi or Gotrick. To me, Feral Foray should be in most packs, if nothing else, because it has six objectives and, and I think a really good scoring orientation. All right, my first pick is the mission we played last night, actually, Dan, Power Struggle. Uh, So this was a mission that on first glance, as I was just kind of looking through, I didn't think much of uh, Mm -hmm. until we got to the actual execution of how the game worked. So the layout is you have two objectives on the line, 15 inches in from the table edge and 11 inches up from your territory edge, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is reflected on your opponent's side, and one objective in the dead center. And the way that the scoring works is you need to hold them for at least two of your consecutive turns to do the scoring part of it for most of this. So the first way it works is score one victory point if you've controlled at least one objective for two of your turns consecutively, which means as we found your opponent can steal it in their turn and then you can hold it in yours and then they can steal it back and it's two of their consecutive turns and that counts. Score one victory point. If you have controlled two or more objectives for two of your turns consecutively, score one victory point if you control more objectives than your opponent, which you can begin doing immediately. Then 
to you know score two victory points if you have completed the battle tactic that you picked that turn. The reason I really like this one is it forces the player into thinking beyond the immediacy of what their next turn is going to be, but what their opponent's turn is, what that player's next turn is, if they maintain control or if a double is given or taken. So yeah. None of them are prime, so all of them are eligible to be removed. Probably most likely the one that's going to get removed is the center one, mm-hmm. as that is going to be the one that's going to be changing hands the most. And if you can inflict control around the outer edges, then you're going to do pretty all right. Yep. Agreed. That's a nice little point. Yeah, and I thought about that, that the potential, you know, the sequencing of, okay, Brennan holds it, then Dan, you take a turn, you hold it, then Brennan gets it back. Technically, he has held it for two more of his turns consecutively, but then, correct. Dan, if you come back around, you could do that as well. Yeah. There's, of course, been some debate in the community and how we're supposed to interpret this, but, I mean, R.A.W., you know, rules is written, it's two more of your turns consecutively. I mean, that's pretty clear what that means. Even if your opponent gets a turn and they take it from you, if you've still held it two of your turns consecutively, you're doing what you need to. Yes. But, anyway... There's been some debate about that. Yeah, because if you interpret it the other way, you are giving a massive advantage to the player that goes second. Yeah, I think it's really interesting too. I like that one. Okay, Um, I'm going to pick power and numbers. I really like that. That's another six. Tyler, you are mentioning the ones with six. Yeah. It's basically three on a line at the end of your territory, three on a line at the end of your opponent's territory. It starts out with backbone of success, which I really like this rule. If there are any battle line units within six inches of an objective, then only models from battle line units can contest that objective. I think that's kind of cool. Although Giants players is pretty much everybody's battle line. That's <laughs> it's yeah. kind of tough. It's kind of tough. Anyway, victory points. So you score two points if you completed a battle tactic, blah, blah, blah. Starting from the second battle round, at the end of each of their turns, a player can destroy one or more of the objectives they controlled in order to score the following victory points. If they gain control of the objective in this turn, they score one. If they controlled it at the end of their last turn and has not lost control, it's two. If the player controlled an objective at the end of their turn before last so and has not lost control of it they get four victory points if they controlled it at the beginning of the game in the first battle round they've not lost control they get eight points so this is like major acceleration and it really motivates you to hold on to those objectives or the other thing i saw as i played it is try to get in and blow up your opponent's objectives so that they cannot score them. That seems to be a viable tactic. If you can get two of the three of theirs and blow them up, get points for them, that really hinders your opponent in terms of being able to catch up. Because then you only have to control yours for another turn or so, and you're going to be overwhelming them in terms of victory points. They won't be able to catch up. Right. Sometimes you may have an opportunity as well, kind of, Dan, speaking of what you're saying, hold your three, push on claim two of your opponent and then you know by the time round three kind of play into doing this in round two Mm. and then round three choose to go second and burn the last one that your opponent is hanging out on Mm -hmm. you you know that's going to be difficult to set up potentially in a lot of Mm. situations but i have seen some you know bad reps where they realized that that was actually one of the, another one season of war I was watching. They had a situation where they kind of realized as they were playing the game that if Jordan in that case had won the priority in round three, he would be able to go second and burn mm-hmm. the last one on the table, which is where the Seraphon was castling and planning to stay in the game by <laughs> holding that objective. But, you know, yeah, I agree. I, then also the fact that this one is battle line specific mm-hmm. is really significant in my mind. 
in a, you know, with the exception of how Sons of Work, Sons of Bayonet, uh, in a meta right now that's all about, you know, all these incentives for monsters. It's orthogonal to, you know, how many of the incentives are pushing yes. us in the other direction really right now. Nice. Yep. And I, again, you, you mentioned it, but that turn three blowing up an objective as well is, my gosh, yeah. that really affects this profoundly. Back to you, Tyler. Let's go with the old classic, Savage Gains. So Savage Gains is essentially, in many ways, the quintessential Age of Sigmar scenario over the six years, Border War, where or Battle for the Past, the Long Ways version. So Savage Gains, there's a couple of nuances to this one that I'd missed initially. Prime objectives, you are not allowed to burn the objective on the border of your territory or the objective on the border of your opponent's territory, but you could burn one of the two in the middle. So the two in the middle are options for burning in round three through seismic shift. And then another little nuance, different from, unless you guys are interpreting this differently, different from old school border war and battle for the past, is previously with those, let's say, Dan, you held both of the two middle, you would get two points for the left and two points for the right. Mm -hmm. But as I'm reading this now, it it simply says, score two victory points if you control an objective that is not on the border of either player's territory. So I think you would just get two points total regardless of if you control both. And I would agree with you because it doesn't say score two victory points for each objective you control that's not on the border. Yep. Okay, cool. So one of both. Yeah, and then otherwise... Score one victory point if you control the objective on the border of your tor- territory. Score four victory points if you control the objective on the border of your opponent's territory. Sure. And then, of course, the battle tactic is still being played. Yeah, this is just the you know classic AOS mission, one that you'll probably see in majority of packs. Mm-hmm. Uh, oldie but a goodie. My next one is one that I think will show up in tournament packs, whether you like it or not, <laughs> is marking territory. And this is, you have... Two objectives on your and your opponent's territory line, which is 11 inches up, 15 inches from the short edges. And the only way to actually claim a major victory is to hold all of the objectives on the table. Now, none of them are prime, so all of them are eligible to be removed. And remember that removal is a can statement and not a shall statement. You can choose to leave them all on the board and force your opponent to have to cover them all, which can prove to be interesting and difficult for some people. With that being said, starting from the third battle round, one player immediately wins a major victory if they control all of the objectives on the battlefield. If neither player has won a major victory by the end of the battles and the player that has completed the most battle tactics wins a minor victory, if both players... Uh, have completed the same number of battle tactics and only one player has completed their grand strategy, that player wins a minor victory. If both players or neither player completed their grand strategy, the battle is a draw. The ability to get all four of the objectives is pretty sizable, number one. But then the inflection point of the turn three priority roll ends up being very significant. Um, This is going to be one of the battle plans that you need to really understand what your army can and cannot do and, Mm -hmm. and master your outs. So if you don't have the ability to go out and win the game, then you need to find a way to win the minor. And to do that successfully can in and of itself be a pretty difficult task. You know, this is where the battle tactics ends up being very important, not for necessarily the overall score of the game, because there is no score. It is simply a binary win or lose condition and being able to 
prevent your opponent from scoring battle tactics, which is how I managed the minor win in my game three at Circle City, was selling out hard on castling and making it impossible for my opponent to score battle tactics from time to time. I think this is going to, since there is no real knife to the heart, this is going to be the knife to the heart replacement that everybody writes into their packs. You know, I mean, I... Yeah, man, you and I have had the blood and glory from 2016, you know, conversation between that and Knife to the Heart. You you know, my opinion, I I always considered that one a little bit better, a little more intriguing, but kind of serving the same role that Knife to the Heart was, uh, you know, so that that was, I think, a debate that we had over the years. That, yeah, this one, there's multiple layers of consideration to marking territory, as it was with, with blood and glory. Like that initial layer take is, well, why would you ever put this in a pack if you potentially have games that are immediately decided by who wins the round three priority well if if that's happening then you've potentially done screwed up in your choices in rounds one and round two because there are ways as you just said to mitigate that in terms of how you play how you write lists etc yeah there's value in having a mission if you're at a tournament that is not like having a point differential where you know you've got to win by say 10 points in a game in order to get a major victory as opposed to if you just win by one point and you flat out get the major victory if, if a tournament's not doing that then yeah that could be valuable to introduce this one that's quite difficult you know in many cases to get the major victory as a separator i'm generally a fan of this one as well but i think a lot of people like initially write it off sort of that first layer consideration dan what is your second battle plan uh vice someone had to do it yeah of course they did this was my game too at circle city i was playing alex Milonis. i was playing his daughters actually it was a rematch for us so it was interesting game by the way he did take a dirty list and he brought 15 shooty snakes so <laughs> ah, hope you marked him down buddy no not at all <laughs> joke, joke, joke. He's, he's great so vice basically you're deploying the four objectives in the four corners of the table playing long what happens here is you've got the four objectives and in turn two they move basically towards the center halfway towards the center each one of them so you yep. still got four objectives and then in turn four you don't move you basically remove three and you move the one that's remaining to the center of the board um, yep. and they are all not removable so none of them can be taken out in turn three so scoring you score one victory point if you control at least one objective score one if you control two score one if you control more and then two victory points if you get your battle tactic as we were playing the game i really liked the way this it made the game very dynamic Duh, you're moving the objectives it's going to be dynamic but it really made you think ahead and i think we were both taking a little bit of extra time because we were thinking where's it going to be next turn what does that mean i have to do they're not going to move this turn what does that mean i'm going to have to do when this thing ends up in the center and it was really uh-huh. interesting because i think we decided at the end of turn three but he had marathi right on this thing and uh-huh. i had 40 zombies coming at marathi <laughs> I was going to be able to take that center objective, and that kind of was the deciding thing. It was interesting that you had to focus on kind of the turn ahead, and that's what I really liked about this one. You couldn't just see where everything was because it was fixed. Uh, You're not removing anything. You had to move your armies in a way that you kind of moved along with the objectives. That's the other thing that I thought was very different with this that I really liked. Setting things up, anticipating what was going to happen. I liked it because it was so different. Brendan, what do you think about this one? I think as long as you can get your table set up in a way where playing the long ways is manageable, yeah. you know, it's so much fun to play. We've never had a mission like it, and people yeah. are going to want to just play it, right? Mm-hmm. So 
if you can, as long as you can, as a tournament organizer, set the tables up in a way that permits you to play this in a reasonable way, then yeah, I think you're going to see it. But in the super big, long gaming halls where, you know, you got to go around two and a half, three tables to get to the other side of yours, you're probably not going to see it there. But if the butt end of your table is touching that of the other table and you only have to go around your own table from one direction, that's not a big deal. No. Now, advantage guy playing open end of the table, but, you know, that's... <laughs> that's uh, sure. the kind of pro strats that you're not going to get from a lot of different shows. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, overall, what do you high-level thinkers, what are you thinking about these battle plans? I think my main concern with them is the average number of objectives is smaller than GHB 20 which had the highest average of any since the GHB 2016 it's quite a shift from GHB 20 that we really of course tend to get to to use much unless we were rocking TTS or in New Zealand or Australia or something yeah I'm worried about the the power per square inch the, you know, the power projection of these hero monsters being able to have far too much influence on too many missions where you can just have a Gotrick or Marathi or an Archeon or a Cabbage or a powerful unit of nine Storm Friends or 30 sentinels with power projection hanging out in the center of the board and you know the smaller board size there's just not enough space and not enough objectives on the board i, I worry about that happening in too many missions we'll see mm-hmm. see how that goes uh, particularly when we're burning objectives you know, even in some of these three we're burning what like first blood we can burn brennan said it's not mandatory but you can't do that to get it out of two i'd be curious to hear you guys thoughts on whether you would consider any of these poor or somewhat poor choices for a tournament do any stand out in that regard yeah, I think some of the angled setup missions yeah. I don't particularly like. They really very much penalize some of your kind of more average armies where just the ability to go near an objective ends up making a, a huge difference. And then the one I really don't think you're going to see very much of is the one where reserve and summoned units arrive yeah. on the board unable to shoot and or charge that's just total commitment all over again right where oh, right. You're like oh well, you can't set them up in reserve like well you can but now they can't do anything and you go yeah i really take that personally for a lot of reasons i mean you think about that you know you can have an army that's a shooty army that can deploy on the board oh sorry it's summoned units okay summoned yeah. units okay oh but there's also no reserves okay yeah, which, again, sucks. How do I, as a Nighthawk player who relies on mobility to be successful, speed and mobility, how do I overcome the fact that I can't, you know, oh, come up with solutions. Yeah, that's easy to say, but you have to have tools to come up with a solution. You know, you, uh-huh. you can't put a nail into a board. You can try to put it in with a screwdriver, but it doesn't work very well when you use the handle. You kind of need a hammer. should ask one of my former interns. Yeah, of They'll tell you that everything's a hammer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because you've given a lot of advantages to armies that are monster heavy, and it's fine. I, I don't care about that. That's We're in Gur. Just deal with the fact that we're in the realm of Gur. It's the monster thing. We're going to be yeah. playing that way for a while. Maybe I'll get lucky and it'll be Shaiish next time. You know, great, awesome. Uh-huh. I'm going to get some fun thing. And I'm going to have death armies one way or the other. But when you take away something that's a basic part of... And, and it's not just Night Hunt. It's other armies as well that really... I think about Brendan's second list. That list that we played last night, Brendan. That's why it's an alt list. Yeah, you know what? Uh. Your, that particular 
scenario, no, it's not going to work for you. You know, and so it's be very sad, especially if I'm playing a shooting army. I just don't like when they take away something that's essential. It's it's a real you know key component of a person's ability to play the game. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything you guys have said. It's my number one draft choice to uh, excise to, to not use. What about? I'm just curious. What uh, real quickly get some uh, maybe summarized opinions. Veins of Gur and Apex Predators. Uh, just for everybody's reference, in case I don't think we said it. Tooth and Nail is what we were talking about. Yeah. The one with yeah mm-hmm. the reserves yeah. and summoning issue. So Veins of Gur is essentially Star Strike. It's yeah. slightly different. So mm-hmm. you know you have on the left side. So you know we're now veins are popping out. So a vein uh, start of battle round two, the vein pops out in the middle of the board, and you roll a dice on a two to six. It's on the left side. On a seven, exact, it's right in the middle. Mm-hmm. On an eight to twelve, it's on the right. And then start round three, both the respective veins pop out again, exactly like Star Strike. And the scoring system works the same way. Those are all prime objectives. Fifteen points are available in round five. Five points mm-hmm. per objective. Twelve points available in round four. Uh, four points per objective. Uh, what do you guys think about that one? I mean, it's Star Strike, right? You know, the variance has changed a little bit between where it lands, but it's not so much that you know, like that one Star Strike version where it was a bell curve. Yeah. Oof, yikes! That was certainly a choice. <laughs> I think this has the appropriate variance in terms of you know requiring you to consider having a fast army. The results aren't so wide where you can still play the patented Dave Nordstrom fist fight in a phone booth kind of list. Yeah. Or, you know, Vince's <laughs> power per square inch. They're the same principles. Like, it's fine. You know, yeah, I still think you'll good. see that one. I still like the inclusion of some variance-based missions in packs. This one is, as far as it goes, largely inoffensive. It's no relocating orb. It's no heat map. Right. Star Strike, like, you know, it's no super weird Scorched Earth situation. It's no better part of Valor. Like, cool, good, fine. Yeah. Apex Predators, I've always been a fan of Places of Arcane Power or, mm-hmm. you know, the iterations around it. It forces people to have to consider builds that are more balanced. So this is one of those things that penalizes skewless, which I'm personally not a huge fan of not necessarily saying that this is you know something that i'd use to to force that penalty but if i know that the meta is heavy skewless apex predators might show up and just and i might just say as a function of it all right let's see which one of you is really really good at this do you guys think this mission would be better if it had the prime objectives if you could not burn any oh, of the three hundred percent yeah <laughs> Yes. For yeah. sure. The, That's my problem with it right now. The yeah. fact you can burn in round three. With that being said, though, this is one of those missions that can really penalize Archeon base lists. Yeah. And it can also make it impossible for Archeon to lose them, however. Yeah, but that you have to, you know, all the sequel potentially keep him, you know, all the sequel, not necessarily always, but, you know, the smooth brain thought is you have to keep Archeon on, on the objective that you choose for him to keep racking up the points. Mm-hmm. Or, or you, you get, yeah, a lot of the... Or you well, just kill all the heroes. Or kill all the heroes, yeah. I mean, there, there probably are some potential alternatives. But yeah, like, I mean, like, corn lists that I've been seeing with Archeon, like Archeon, maybe Bloodthirster, probably a Chaos War Shrine, Chaos Sorcerer Lord, I think those are usually the four heroes. Zinch, you know, Kairos, Archeon, Blue Scribes, uh, maybe another hero not you know not a lot of heroes but anyhow dan what do you think about apex predators i'm fine with it i think i can play it i don't like 
from what I've seen so far, it, when you have a smaller amount of objectives, it just makes it much more of a challenge. If you've got four giants, and again, I, that's what we saw a lot of, and you've only got three objectives, yeah, it's really hard for me to think that I'm going to win that game. I can I can play it hard, but no, you just park three of them, and then the fourth one comes out and pounds the hell out of me. You're looking for your yeah. heroes in particular. Yeah, you know what? Okay, what am I supposed to do? Honestly, I can't kill giants with my list. I, I, I could, but you know what? It's going to take me two or three turns to kill the giant. And they'll, at that point, have gained the, yeah. the points necessary yeah. to... So we talk, just talked about this last night. I'm not a real big fan. I'm going to just step out again and say that I understand, too, that it looks like, at least, every year we're going to get another realm. So next summer, when GHB 2022 comes out, we're going to get a whole new set of of whatever. We might get a whole new set of tactics. We might get a whole new set of, or, or not a whole new set, but there'll be some of those essentials, you know, that are kind of rewrites of the Oldest, yeah, mod- modified yeah, to, to some other condition. Originals. But then you're going to have other ones that are new, kind of like Vice and those kind of things. And I think maybe then it'll change, you know, because then whoever's in that realm will have a little bit of an advantage. Or whoever has monster lists may not be in an advantage. Maybe it'll be an MSU meta with this new realm. So, yep. again, I go for a different reason when I play at tournaments. I'm going to play the game. I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to roll dice, win or lose. I'm going to play my best game. That's that's kind of my feeling on these, Tyler, is they're ones, of course, I don't like, but the ones I do and whatever, you know, the gods of Sigmar present me with, I'm going to play the game and have a good time. So, <laughs> Right on. Yeah. Would you guys, before closing it out, I'd be curious, I don't know, Brendan, if you can do this with Bruce City Brawl, but I'd love to hear, like, Dan, what you would pick as, you know, if you're running a tournament next weekend, what you think would be good five choices. Oh, yeah, I'm going to keep that one close to my vest, given that I have Bruce City Brawl coming up and I run Adepticon. So, <laughs> you what, uh, Dan, I'll give you some time to think. So I would go, again, on the principle of, you know, my personal bias is to think that we're going to want multiple missions with more than three objectives. Yep. So okay. I would I would start with Feral 4 Ray. Mm-hmm. I would even give serious consideration to going power numbers, doubling up on both of those. I really yep. like the battle line opponent and I like the yep. six objectives. So let's go with those two Savage Gains. I would put in there yep, that's three I'm, that's one of my choices vice is another one just because it's fun assuming yep. we have the setup but we're gonna assume we do that mm-hmm. would be my fourth one and i like the veins of gur i kind of okay. like the randomness a little bit yep. i like the fact that you have to you have a general idea where they're going to end up so again this mm. is one of those things kind of like with vice where you know where they're going to be in general and so you have to kind of adjust and move your units and position your army so that you can take advantage of wherever things are going to be so yep. i kind of like that one too how about you for number five yeah so far four ray power numbers let me go through them again savage gains that's yes. three i would definitely do I th- i'm really attracted to first blood mm. as a mm-hmm. three objective one sure. uh, you know i mean that that's kind of a quintessential you know maybe great first round for a tournament the three in the middle fairly small deployment you got actually decent space decent amount of dead man zone there with okay. that mission which is nice and they shorter boards i like that so that'd be my fourth and then yeah dude the the fifth is like the flex so that's like mm-hmm. to me i'd say my top three candidates would be i don't know about the vice i'm intrigued by it but i want it to be good i hope it's good to me it has potential that it, it could be one of those like a lot of us were a lot of people when they first saw GHB 19 or 20 they're like oh my god duality of death is going to be so interesting and it was terrible yeah. I really hope the vice is not new duality of death in that regard I don't think it is no I I'd, don't think so 
Yeah, I'd probably go power in numbers or veins of Gur for okay. number five. Yeah, I'm done with that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's battle plans. Uh, gents, why don't we spend a little bit of time just talking about some general thoughts on, on 3.0, uh, final thoughts, those kind of things before we close the series out. And Tyler, let's start with you. Oh, gosh. General thoughts on 3.0. Okay. Um, in five minutes or less. In five minutes five or minutes less. Five minutes or less. <laughs> I can start a timer for you. It's easy. Uh, yeah, you probably should. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we used I... to do during the 40K shows, actually. <laughs> I do think that this edition warrants the moniker of best edition, the jokes aside. It's sort of the best of times and worst of times. It is the best edition, in my opinion, enormous but, in that there are some clear and present challenges, dangers, yikes, right now. (laughs) The meta, as far as I can tell, appears to be quite diverse at the start here. I'm really hoping that's maintained pretty well as we get these battle tones, particularly the first two, first three that we're getting. I'm really hoping that we do not get, like, battle tactics and grand strategies per battle tome and just have an explosion in the way 40k does with all these different stratagems where you've got to know your yeah. how many yeah and then all of the armies stratagems that's absolutely insane i ran through all of the different factions in one of the warmer weekly shows at the end of a four-hour show and was pleasantly surprised at how many of the factions that i thought were competitive you know you could figure out a way to make them work so i like that uh, we're obviously dealing with the challenges of safe stacking where you have the difference between gross and net i mean everybody's mm-hmm. probably this by now yeah, yeah where you can only net out a plus one however you can stack against rends so with uh, i've been noticing this certainly with cabbages where i can get ironclad plus one save i can do finest hour plus one save i can do mystic shield plus one save i can do all out defense potentially plus one save i can get up to a plus four save with a baseline three plus cabbage crazy yep. very good <laughs> Yeah, it withstood uh, three stone horns on, you know, because I failed to roll a two up, and then I doubled the Maw Tribes player back and took off those three stone horns to to win the game. It's led to some crazy swingy situations. I'm not sure what, you know, it's too early in my mind to immediately say this is a this is a definitive, you know, out of bounds problem. It's a challenge. I think we need a little bit more time, more events. Let's see, we're still seeing some of these power units, 30 Sentinels, 30 Iron Drakes, 9 Storm Friends, etc. To me, that those are less of an issue than some of these god models. I think Archeon is in a league of his own right now. I would not put Marathi or Gotrik or Nagash in his sphere. He needs to be either have a war scroll change or just flat out a thousand points. Nagash appears to be very powerful, but he's reasonably appropriately costed as far as i can tell i mean brendan could i think that's a relatively fair assessment i saw i think it was at manchurian carnage uh-huh. that had a nagash list that flatly made no sense to me because my gut instinct would be to go nagash and all them boys mm-hmm. yeah but he went nagash manfred of angorian lord and i went and what did the rest of your army do? Like, <laughs> right. how on earth did you... All ten models? <laughs> yeah, how on earth did you even attempt to win those games, sir? They went 4-1. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have seen it all play out because I saw the list, I went down to my basement, I set up the list on the table, and I went, I gotta ask somebody, I got nothing here. And yeah. I can't tell you the last time that I looked at a list and just went, 
I have no idea what this does. Right. And and obviously the result is out there as such as it is, but oh boy, if Nagash was, you know, 800 points, we'd probably be having the same conversation of these two are totally out of bounds. But, you know, Nagash lives at just under 1,000, and right. you say, well... Yeah, that's probably about right. It's probably a little high, but it's closer to right than it is to wrong. And Brennan and I had had a discussion, speaking of Nagash, about Kragnos. Uh-huh. And how, ooh, that would be really fun to take a Nagash list. Unless there was Kragnos on the other side of the board. And yeah. basically, don't even bother trying to kill him with spells because it ain't going to work. You know, right. literally. I think that's kind of cool that they came up to a counter with that particular thing. I'd just like to see more counters very specific counters to things like that, to other yeah. lists that are problematic from my perspective as a Nighthawk player. I think it would be interesting if they went to like, a, to like a wheel where gods were diametrically opposed. Yeah, right? that would be very you know, cool. Like if there was a god on the order side that was diametrically opposed to Archeon, where you just go, oh, I don't know how I feel about that, and you play it that way. But yeah, yeah. That, that would be kind of cool idea. Yeah, yeah there, I mean, we're definitely, we are having some challenges with this Godhammer era that we're in right now. We need more time, in my opinion, to see a player, again, other than Archeon. I feel pretty confidently having played that guy probably over 30 times of the last six months. Gross. That, you know, he's a, a problem in the game. And I don't say that lightly, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to say about the meta and kind of where we appear to be. My acid test going into the game was we had, since the books like Seraphon, Zinch, Caradron, Lumineth, we entered heavily into a range damage meta that for some reason didn't start in 2019 enough to naturally put Selenesh and Flesh Eater Quartz and Daughters of Cain a little more in their place, uh, which was odd looking back on it to me. But we were in a range damage meta for quite a while, and how much was 3.0 going to start adjusting that in terms of, you know, generally create the buckets of control, mobility, which kind of related control, but control, mobility, melee, and range. And I think we're in a quite a bit better place right now than we were in 2020 in that regard. Range still has certainly value sometimes it can be a little over the top maybe some of it is a little out of bounds in certain situations but you know with the save stacking issue there's more durability there's shorter boards i think we're in a healthier place in that regard in terms of the variance yeah there's so much going on in these games and as someone who is susceptible to analysis paralysis (laughs) we're always trying to make the right call and sometimes not making the right decision quickly enough i do worry about you know if we're going to stick with two hours 30 minutes whether we're going to have enough rounds, you know, enough games getting completed in time to a natural conclusion. But that'll get easier as we go forward, as people learn the game. But I'm a little concerned, yeah, that given how much is going on right now, that we may need to be looking at maybe like two hours 45 as a baseline. I'll springboard off of some things that you said there, Tyler. And I think the transition of 2.0 to 3.0, more of the armies fit into that fat middle that we like to talk about. And I think the average of that line has moved up. More of those armies can threaten the things that live in the A and the S tier than ever did before. You still have plenty of things that still live in that S tier where you sit there and go, how can we not have seen this coming? Like, guys, for realsies, like, what is going (laughs) on here? The thing I think is most concerning out of that, though, is the armies that did not make it into that uplift group fell through the floor. The things that were already not great, with few exceptions in Sylvaneth, that they were elevated into that, you know, upper middle class group. Mm -hmm. 
of successful armies, but armies like Beasts of Chaos just went, guys, we were a D, like, you know, a D-tier army to begin with, and mm. everything that we did is now somehow less useful. It's very difficult to consider how that is, you know, it's possible that the have-nots are real have-nots right now. What else do you think is in that group? I think have-nots are. Yep. You know, not to offend my co-host's sensibilities here, I think... No, um, I agree. I think Flesh-eater courts have found yeah. their way, you know, below the middle class line. I still think that there's some stuff in there, but... You know, but really affected by the ability to stack command abilities, the inability to use the same command ability more than once in a particular phase. So, you know, you cannot, what, Feeding Frenzy or whatever the, the double activation is, you cannot mm-hmm. do that on multiple units anymore. I think Bone Reapers fell out of favor. You know, really it's everything but Soul Blight in the Death Faction mm-hmm. really, yeah. really took a sizable punch to the face. And obviously, obviously. Those, those are the armies I'm most familiar with terms of expectation i think goomspike gets went through the floor if for no reason other than the age of their book is really starting to show at this moment in time bone splitters as uniquely bone splitters i think lost a lot of their firepower but they're getting you know a book update here shortly i think the thing that's going to be most interesting in terms of defining what the future ends up looking like is what the stormcast and the cruel boys book look like those will set a standard and expectation for the books going forward and what 3.0 is actually supposed to be Uh you know you're hopefully able to gain some understanding from like hedon knights and daughters and soul blight but if we're sitting down and being honest with ourselves those three books are all over the spectrum in terms of (laughs) being indicative to what we thought 3.0 was going to be so in terms of the game state you know that's where i'm at like the the meta uh, as it is the missions and the battle tactics the grand strategies i don't think influence this really at all and the other part of it is battalions of course Mm. is it has actively and aggressively forced players to reconsider their play style and their army and unit inclusions Mm. now some Uh people ended up on very similar if not the same things that's cool and good for them, but I think they're missing out on an opportunity to potentially optimize what it is that they're doing. I know that once I felt like I got my arms around the list building components of this, that I started to look at the framework very differently. And I'm sure other people are you know, light years ahead of I am in terms of list building technologies. And it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out from a tournament result standpoint. The, yeah, on that point, Brennan, I generally think they did a nice job. You know, again, if we please just stick with the GHB 21 and core rules battalions, this you know small set that we're all sharing for the most part, where like Hunters of the Heartlands is starting to see quite a bit of play. I've been seeing oh, it yeah. all over the place now. And in terms of not allowing the monstrous rampage to Huge. happen on your key units, mm-hmm. you know, preventing your unit from getting roared in particular, sort of basically the anti-roar battalion. Yeah, uh, the trade-off between five drop with warlord versus the four drop with command entourage with a warlord you're getting both the artifact and the extra cp command entourage you're only getting one or the other there's still you know a lot of value in going one or two drop you can do double battle regiment i think there's yeah a lot of seeing a lot of diversity in that regard where some lists want to get that extra artifact or they want to get that you know, generally that extra enhancement to go you know amulet of destiny as an extra artifact or an extra spell on zinch so they need to get need to get that extra enhancement which is going to bump up their their number of drops generally thinking that we're basically looking at one drop two drop nine drop i put a four (laughs) drop in there but if you're five or more it's whatever yeah like i I, I, that's sort of the warlord you know command entourage can sneak in under warlord but yeah 
I mean, I take no offense to what Brendan said. <laughs> you know, having played in a tournament and other games I played with my Night Haunt as it's evolved here is I know that if I play well, I can end up in the middle of the, of the pack. I can end up middle tables, and I'm really, really happy if I end uh-huh. up there. And I did. I think I ended up, what, 12th or 13th out of 24, I think something like that. And that includes nice. other things. But I'm hoping that's kind of my goal. And, of course, I, you know, two and three is like, oh, that's kind of pitiful, Dan. You know, you're not very competitive. Well, yeah, I play Night Haunt, okay? So, uh-huh. and here's the other thing I found with them is that I'm almost automatically now considering who my allies are going to be. And Brennan and I have talked about how you can tell how strong a book is by whether or not they need to take allies or not to be competitive. Well, yeah. that answers that question. I mean, what, Brendan, almost every list that I've showed you now, I've had some kind of allies. And you're taking it from the strongest death book at the end. Which is know, soul the yeah. You know, so. mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Manfred and Nighthaunt lists lately. So I'm not playing at the one or two or or three table. I'm just not. Unless, you know, I win the first two games for some reason and I end up there, which I did at Circle City, but it's it's kind of a fluke when that happens. And it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy the game. It doesn't mean that I don't enjoy the challenge. I'm just going to keep playing. You know, I, I'm looking at this from a very different elevation that you and Brendan are, Tyler. You know, you guys have much more contact and, and much more exposure to the wide community and to the people who are at that kind of 10,000 foot level looking down and I'm not there. I'm a ground pounder when it comes to that uh-huh. in terms of playing the game and understanding uh-huh. the game. And, you know, I've got a really good mentor. And so the other thing I know is that no matter what event I go to, there are always going to be people playing at the middle and down. So I'm going to yep. end up playing those people for probably three of my games at least. And uh-huh. so that's where the challenge is for me. That's where I feel like, you know what? That's a real good test of how good a Sigmar player I am. If I can win those games, then I'm doing great with the yep. list I have and the, in the army I have. And I'm not going to change um, other than the fact that I'm going to play Soul Blight <laughs> early next year. I'm going to start playing my Vampers. But yep. the game's okay. And as you both mentioned, some challenges that we have and what I've seen so far as terms of what's at the top tables and so forth, they're fine. You know, I played a giant list. I had a good time doing it. I killed, what, three man-eaters, and I felt really good about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so okay. I walked away, and it was like, yeah, good. All good stuff. So how are you finding the game overall, Dan, just in terms of these rules and just generally no, the addition? I love it. I, I like it a lot. Nice. I, I love the battle tactics. I love the missions, with exception, but the ones that are showing up at events, I'm really enjoying those. The thing that I do like, with the one exception we talked about, is I can use my army rules to keep me competitive in every one of these missions almost which is really nice it's always play to your strength whatever your army is you know and if it's just beat the heck out of stuff if you got monster trucks then you got monster trucks use the monster trucks Uh that's what you're bringing if you got giants use the giants i don't care you know whatever you bring use what you got and i'm not going to be pissed off about it because you're playing an army you enjoy playing or it's super Uh competitive fine that's okay it's Uh what you want to play just like you know what don't give me any crap because i'm playing night haunt i love the models and i love the rules and i love the lore and that's who i want to play and it's not competitive Dan I don't really give a crap (laughs) I just want to play my army and I want to play the game with my friends and meet new people and those kind of things Tyler so I'm looking at it from that perspective that yeah I'm enjoying the game still I really am nice that's good to hear man yeah we've talked probably about this before but yeah it was always so cool to hear you've stuck with Nighthawk for so long because I mean I don't think that's my opinion on this, you know. I think there's often more value in playing those sort of mid-tier armies or lower-tier yeah. armies to help yeah. really teach you the game because, yeah. that, you know, it's it's generally 
I think it makes sense to think that you're going to learn more, you know, by running a Nighthaunt army than you would by, you know, pick your favorite, you know, Archeon and Kairos, yeah. let's say, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Good uh, stuff. Th- That's all good awesome. stuff. All right. Well, thank you for your perspective, gentlemen. I uh, appreciate that very, very much. I'm sure it was useful for the listeners. And listeners, uh, thank you for joining us for this and for sticking with us through these three different episodes where we've talked about 3.0 and we're going to jump into the pool now. Uh, we've been standing on the edge talking about the water for a long time and now I'm just going to dive in and see what comes about. Tyler, I'll certainly, you were going to you're going to be on the rest of the show, but I'm really appreciating your perspective as always that you bring to us and be interested to find out as we evolve during this year, you know, when, it, when the next, what FAQ comes out or whatever it is, mm. the usual adjustment in winter, when we get that to mm-hmm. see if there's anything that we've talked about that they've responded to and that their changes made to address some of the issues you guys have brought up. It'll be good to see that. Um, one of the things I've enjoyed about Sigmar versus 40K is that this community and the rules writers and stuff have been pretty good about that, uh, mm-hmm. keeping the game current and responding to issues that people have, whether it be points or whatever else. So, yeah, I guess that's about it, guys. So thanks again, both of you. And listeners, we are going to move on at this point to Scriptorium. All right. As always, we're going to start out with new releases. There isn't nothing. (laughs) There's one book, which is kind of a collection of stories. It's called Thunderstrike and Other Stories. Well, there you go. And it's Uh Mortal Realms, but nothing else that we haven't mentioned on the last episode or before. Black Library is just kind of treading water right now, it seems. Uh, No big releases or anything else. But then we're going to move over, Tyler, for reads, listens, watches, anything you want to talk about? Let's see. What have I been reading? Been reading quite a bit of Goonhammer.com. Folks are familiar with it. Yeah, they do a lot of 40k coverage, but they've really ramped up their coverage of AOS with 3.0's launch and yeah had some nice articles Plastic Crack uh, Peter Atkinson yeah. guy I know through Twitter uh, great great dude uh, Aussie over there in Australia he's done some articles for them they've been doing these faction focuses uh, did one recently Dan for Nighthawk which was oh. nice a little write up now who is this yeah. Goonhammer.com okay I'll have to check them out okay great listens let's see obviously this podcast finds its way somehow in my <laughs> ear holes likes and Melnick a message usually once a week or every other week during yep. lunch, you're in, my, you're in my ear holes, Melnick. And uh, ever chose a podcast? profanity-laced uh, tirade <laughs> of all the things I've missed. That's <laughs> great. Ever chose a podcast? So Texas Circuit fellas, they're doing great work over there. I think they just completed the Texas Masters series. So they've got all these different events that happen annually, culminate in the Texas Masters. And the guy I mentioned earlier, uh, Matt Robush, he won it with his Daughters of Cain. Oh, uh, wow. You know, talking about how, yeah, maybe Daughters of Cain are a little overrated. He goes and wins the, the Masters event with 15 Snakebows and Marathi. But he does a really nice yeah, summary of how he approaches the game, his thinking of his list, breaks down the games. Uh, that was their latest podcast. It was really excellent. And then watches. Let's see. A lot of baseball. Getting into baseball. Oh, yeah. Any baseball fans here? Oh, huge. We actually gave up on not watching the games because we were listening to them on the radio on the uh you know Sirius XM for a while yeah. and then we just decided you know we're gonna go for it so we signed up for cable and we're watching the games and Cindy especially my wife she loves watching the Brewers yeah we're big baseball fans for sure alright we got a little rivalry here yeah my team yeah. the Giants they yeah, have in the barrier for over a decade yeah, yeah. during the yeah. 13, 12, and 14 I'm getting ready yeah. yeah love baseball uh, a lot of season war I mentioned them already mm-hmm. you know I think it's one of the best battle report channels out there they have a wide variety of lists usually competitive member there so I get now 
they hit the membership goal that allows for two matchups are coming out a week now one for members so that's been really great to see yeah canadian crew over there Movies, shows, what the hell have I been watching? Oops, sorry. That's Let's no see. The White Lotus on HBO is phenomenal. It is trippy. It's set in this resort called the White Lotus, and it's all first world problems. And oh, it's just incredible characters, you know, young okay. people, older. Yeah, it's really good if anybody hasn't seen it. All right. Brendan, what about you? Mine's been real simple, is I have got all the way caught up with Peaky Blinders, which is through nice. season five. Yeah. Mm. So we're all the way there and good lord. Season five. Oof. <laughs> good stuff. Oof. That's hilarious. So I'm guessing you would recommend it, Brendan. Oh, I've been debating yeah. for years oh, whether yeah. to start that because it's so much so many episodes. Season one is kinda rough. And I said it, you know, when I started, they do storytelling in a way where they kind of expect you to know things. And maybe if you're not British, you don't know these things. And so some of the storytelling gets very confusing because they do some listener assumptions that are wholesale incorrect. Season two, they start to fix that. Three is extremely compelling because they start putting villains into place that are really bleep and evil. I think from a historical perspective, you'll really enjoy season five. Okay, cool. Obviously, it's some of it is very loosely history-based, but there are some real touchstones in season three, season four, and season five in actuality. It was season five being meaningful and impactful in societal and political ways, and they choose to kind of weave the story into that. It has been a long time since I've watched something where... I have been like so physically seized by the dramatic tension of mm. of what it is that's going on. And wow. the last two episodes of season five, I was sitting there going, how on earth is this going to resolve itself? <laughs> like at the end of season five, my first thing was end of show? Season five, Peaky Blinders? No, there is a season six coming out. So, but I don't know what it means. All right, yeah. I'll check it out. I started Saturnine in terms of you know, my my reading listens, but I, you know, I'm only like an hour or two into it. That's so cool. I wanted to comment on your reaction to First Wall, okay. which was pretty visceral. So I wanted to say to you that that's a Gav Thorpe book. Gav is somebody who has been writing for Black Library forever. You really have a different style than you do with a John French or a Dan Abnett and so forth. So if you're not used to Gav and you read him a book like that, that's like part of a big you know, kind of marquee series, I can understand why you might have difficulty. It just, his writing style is just different. And his story resolution and storytelling method is different. It kind of throws you off when you've read these other people who write how they do. Yeah. So, And there were definitely some things at the end of that where I was like, oh, that's very interesting. And there was one of the payoffs to it that I was like, <laughs> I was very frustrated because there had been nothing to that point that had indicated that that was sure. the direction that had you know tipped that hand in any kind of foreshadowing mm-hmm. or anything like that and i was like well this feels kind of cheap yeah now the other thing that i would recommend before you get too far if you have time mm-hmm. before you get too far into saturnine is to read or listen to wrath of magnus okay which is one of the many kind of graham mcneil he's done these little bridge stories he did sons of the selenar which is cool if you understand the backstory but it's not necessary 
necessary, but Wrath of Magnus, I think, is really, really essential. It will help you understand the rest of the story a little better. Okay. And it's pretty short. It's relatively short. It's about half as large as the other books. It's like 200 pages or something. So Anyway. Listens for me. I finished Cartwright's Cavaliers, which was the book I had talked about the series. There's 12 in the series. It's like, a, I think, 23rd century, maybe 22nd century stories about mercenary units. They're called the Four Horsemen. It wasn't Black Library quality, for sure, but it was really entertaining. It was really interesting. The main character of Cartwright's Cavaliers was a young guy. He was like 18, 19 years old, and he ended up taking over this mercenary company with no experience at all. But one of the things that like locked me into him right away is you know I'm a big fan of Coca-Cola. So here it is, hundreds, you know, another century, a hundred years from now, and he ends up in this kind of mercenary bar where there's things on the screen and you pick contracts and things like that. And he's sitting there and all of a sudden he sees a bottle and he's like, oh my God, is that what I think it is? Like, oh my God, it's a, it's a Coke in a glass bottle. And it was just hilarious. I'm going, I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of depth. The other thing is, I found out that every story, there's a different reader. So if you didn't like the reader on another one, like the second book, a different person reading the story. Hmm. So interesting. But yeah, it's worth giving a a listen, but it's okay. I'm continuing reading Grey Knights and is determined. I told you about the villain. Yes, he managed to somehow get out of a maximum security inquisitorial prison. Uh, As Uh, one does. Yes, yes. (laughs) I remember my first prison escape. It was pretty cool, though. The whole scene was was pretty wild. It had to do with death cultists in 40K, so that was very cool. I watched episode two of How to Become a Tyrant. This was the Saddam Hussein episode. It's pretty fascinating because they combine like this kind of semi-animation with live action footage. But they just, uh-huh. they kind of describe the person's rise to power and how they did it and what they did. And at the end of this, I'm going, I'm glad this guy's not around anymore. He was just, vi- I mean, both, you know, Hitler and Hussein were both just, uh-huh. you couldn't pick much more. It'll be interesting when they get to Pol Pot because I think they're going to talk about him. Yeah. Ooh, yikes. Yeah. It's just fascinating. I also just recently watched. A documentary about a guy named Thomas Cochran. He has this moniker of the craziest admiral in the British Navy. And H. Sale. That's a high bar to clear. But, but no, it's really cool because both of you are probably familiar at least with the name Horatio Hornblower. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And I don't know if either one of you watched Master and Commander with no. Russell Crowe. Yeah. It, it was it's a pretty probably, good movie. It was a really good movie. So both. Captain Aubrey in that movie and Horatio Hornblower are based on Thomas Cochran. He was a Scotsman who ended up, his dad sent him to the army. He thought the army was horrible and he begged his dad to get him into the Navy and he ended up starting a Navy career. He ended up not only serving with the British Navy, but he served with the Chilean, the Peruvian and the Brazilian Navy. And you're going, what? This was the time when these countries were rebelling against Spain. And of course, as a British officer, he had fought against Spain. He got this reputation. So these representatives from these, you know, budding countries, they wanted him to command their navies for them. Um, So he is revered, this Scottish naval officer is revered in all three of these countries now up to today even you wow. know, 200 years later and it, it's just fascinating and he was just so different and when you but when you listen to this thing and then you remember like the movie Horatio Hornblower or you remember Aubrey you're going yeah I can see elements of the guy in this so it was just fascinating and obviously a, a student of naval history it was really cool and then I have big reading news from here at Riverwalk Studios my wife Cindy just finished reading her first 40k book. Oh. 
really cool. And it it's a book. It's part of a series of uh, author named Matt Ferrer, F-A-R-R-E-R. He writes about an enforcer, Arbitus Enforcer. Her name is Shiro Calpernica. She's on this planet called Hydrafer. That's it. It's a big naval base, you mm-hmm. know, for the Imperial uh. Navy and stuff. But she's an enforcer, so she's kind of a cop, a detective uh, in the 41st millennium. You know, I saw that my and my wife, Tyler, is a voracious reader. She kind of, when she runs out of books to read, she'll grab something that she's read 20 times and I see her reading it and I go, can I get her something else? So yeah. she's really into detective type things. She really likes female characters. So I'm like, oh, I hadn't read, you know, the Shira books for a long time. I'm looking over at her reading materials one day and I saw the book. I gave it, you know, got it for her and gave it to her. She's like on page 100. I'm going, oh my God, she didn't put it away. And then she finished it and she was so excited about it. I got her the omnibus that has all three of the Shira stories in it. Uh, So so that's really, really cool. But now the challenge is to find her something else to read (laughs) once she finishes these three. But it was pretty exciting to see her enjoying something like that. And of course, I got the occasional question like, you know, what's a hive? Or what's the Mechanicus? And those kind of things, you fill in that exposition piece. and mm-hmm. um, But it was wonderful to see her enjoying some 40K science fiction. So Yeah, absolutely. Very, very cool. All right. So that's it for Scriptorium, gents. Let's jump on over to this or that. And we're going to have three questions each. And we're going to do round robin like we have before when we have a guest. So we'll be right back with this or that. Okay, Tyler, you are the guest. You can choose who you would like to ask your first question. Okay, let's start with you, Deb. Do you now include or leave out Dread Scythe Herodons? Now, I had this written down before you mentioned them near Mm. the top of the show, but we didn't go into too much detail. So what are you thinking? In this edition, with the changes to the War Scroll and the Bellacore book, I think they're viable. You know, Brendan has encouraged me to, you know, just put some models on the table and move them around and roll some dice and stuff. And I was doing some of that, as I mentioned earlier. And it was really interesting. When I look at the points, they're for 20 of them versus, say, 30 chain rasps. They're, I think, about 20 more points, something like that. That's very close. It's very close. The fact that against most armies, Tyler, if you are bravery 8 or less, a minus 1 to hit... Uh, I can throw Shade Mist, you're minus one to wound. Minus one to hit, minus one to wound. Boy, that that makes you pretty darn resilient. I have a four-up save. I have a Uh six-up ward save. And the damage output, even though I can only get, you know, with coherency now, they're on 32s, I can only get maybe eight to ten in base. Uh On sixes, I'm exploding. And I can do all at attack, so I'm hitting on threes, wounding on threes, minus one rend. Wow. I've found that I think they're a viable option now. Yeah, that's great. Nice. Really yeah, do. I've been seeing like two by ten making their way into some lists. Mm. Yeah, but I'm only doing the twenty because, and it's kind of the same thing I did with my X rays with ten. Is mm. once they're gone, they're gone. You can't mm-hmm. bring them back. So if I don't have enough to absorb the damage, sure. And again, with minus one to hit and wound, I'm averaging. I'm taking about ten to twelve off the board, but I'm buffing them with both a spirit torment and a guardian in Reikner's Condemned. Mm. So I'm rolling 2d6 plus d3. Yeah, that's great. That brings back a lot of models on average. So Definitely. Um, so hopefully that'll work. Yeah, to answer cool, your question. Matt. All right, long answer. <laughs> Brendan? Also a question for you, Dan. What is the grand strategy that GHB 2021 is missing for competitive and meaningful choice? On the fly, that's a tough one. 
I have to go with an army that has no monsters. Mm -hmm. So maybe I think about the behemoth keyword instead of monster keyword. Okay. Something like that. Because I think a lot of monsters out there are behemoths as well. Many of them are. Many of them are. And I know of one model in particular... That is a behemoth, but not a uh, hero. It always, or, comes, it always comes back to my beautiful coaches. It always comes back to the coach. <laughs> that would be my thing. Make yeah, one. how do we solve world hunger? Yeah. Well, the black coach is... Uh... <laughs> and the way to make world hunger go away quicker? <laughs> bring two of them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my answer. Okay. Tyler, I have a very simple question for you. Sure. Very simple. Apples or oranges? Oranges. 100% all why? day, every why? day. I always ask the why. I'm waiting for some like <laughs> economics efficiency answer here. <laughs> Gosh, I don't, yeah, I don't have a good answer. Maybe I was fed them more as a young kid. <laughs> That's an answer. <laughs> yeah, man, I just always, always love the the taste of oranges. Not a big orange juice guy though. Okay, orange juice kicks up the acidity, particularly in the morning as you get mm, old. That mm-hmm. doesn't sit well. So, no. but no, cool. uh, all, all oranges all day. Okay, back to you, Tyler. Sweets. Let's go with Melnick. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, GHB 20 battle plan set or GHB 21? 21. No doubt in my mind on that one. I think they chose to go with a hard reset in 21, which allowed you to explore more unique and creative solutions, where General's Handbook 20, I think, ended up having to try to serve too many masters and worked more towards familiarity and revision of existing expectations. Cool. I still miss forcing the hands. Love that mission. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it didn't have good ones. Yeah. Maybe we'll see them again, re- resurrected. You know? Yeah. Brendan, how about you? Question for Tyler. What is the gatekeeper mission everyone needs to be able to expect to have a path to victory in at tournaments if they hope to win? Great question. I think your marking territory was a good shout. Let's see. Let me flip through them. Gatekeeper. Let me give a finalist. So, marking territory. Apex Predators potentially. I could see that making its way into some packs. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that we see Place of Arcane Power. You know, similar view on that to how a lot of people I think would dismiss Place of Arcane Power. It could be too skew. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think there are ways to play around Apex Predators. I do wish that you could not burn. Let's see... Gatekeeper, power numbers would probably be the other finalists. Yeah, marking territory, power numbers, or apex predators, probably marking territory. All right, Brendan, Soulblight question for you. Oh boy. Wolves or bats? Obviously, as we've discussed in different times and places, both of them serve entirely unique functions. Yes. I think wolves have a higher level of utility across the army, but that is to be said with the addendum of the roles in which bats play and then the lists in which they are made useful greatly outweighs wolves in those roles. However, wolves find themselves more useful in more roles. Okay. It's a better place to start for most. Okay. Tyler, back to you, man. Got another Nighthawk question, Dan. Oh, God. I'll I'll try to to be a bit more uh, succinct. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going for the longing for here. I'm asking you about Nighthaunt. I'm telling myself, I checked with Brendan. Which army is Dan on now? I think he's still on Nighthaunt, but I I thought he was (laughs) talking about Soulblood. I wasn't sure where you were. Shyish Reaper or Mortalis Terminexus? (laughs) Okay, that is, those are two, I'm just going to tell you, all three, even with the changes, they're crap. And oh, really? Hot no, takes. No, no, yeah. Was... And, and here's the thing. Oh. Terminexus was one I was going to consider. But I think I mentioned earlier why it's not good. 
And it just blew me away when I'm reading it. And it was like, okay, you can heal D3 wounds. Great. Wonderful. That's cool. But how about bringing back D3 models? You know, like... And that's what the black coach is here for. (laughs) I mean, seriously, Tyler. Like, it's a night haunt list. How many single models do I have? Single wound models. Bringing back wounds, yeah, that's great. That's fun. Combine that with heroic healing. You have to play a very different list. You do. So... My choice would be none of the above. I would uh, rather take... I, I wow. Just, I Pick ju- an option D. No. It wasn't even listed. <laughs> if, if you give me the points, I'll take Terminexus. If you give me the points. Okay. Otherwise, I'm not touching that spell. I've got much better choices for the points in the GHB. So. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. So, okay, yeah. when I looked through them, you know, I thought the Reaper could see some play, and I thought that the Terminexus, but yeah. we can talk about that more in depth later. Yeah, but, yeah. I think so. So I, I would don't... like to propose that Dan asks his question next, because my question is a show-ending question oh, of God. show-ending questions. Oh, God, okay. So, Tyler, and if I've asked you this before, I have a backup question, but I don't think I have. You're going to pick a book off the shelf. And there's a shelf full of science fiction books, and there's a shelf full of fantasy books. Which Mm. are you going to read? Oh, great question. Oh, wow. Oh, good question. All right. Yeah, I love that one. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, God. I'm going to be here forever. You you finally, we've hit the analysis paralysis stage of the show. It's happened. I've been doing so well. We've triggered his default setting. see we've done it we've managed the same yeah, thing right. that a gonna, cheesecake factory go. menu will do to him <laughs> i'm gonna go cheesecake factory normie and pick this is gonna really upset a lot of people and oh, show my normies i want to pick Dragonlance chronicles because god oh, yeah. you know i will defend that series to my death mm-hmm. and race limagier and company I love that series growing up, as so many of us did in the sure, 90s. Sure, absolutely. I've actually started rereading it uh, fairly recently. I read a lot of science fiction during my past life, you know, long-term science technology philanthropy. Sure. Science fiction, I'll probably go a, a Werner Vinci, a Diamond Age with uh, Neil Stevenson was, was pretty yeah. incredible. So I have the last question here, Tyler. Last word. It's a basketball question for you. Oh. All right. I would say this is the culmination of a several episode long running bit that I have going here. Oh, God. As as you are well aware, the 2021 NBA champions are are your Milwaukee Bucks. So my question is is very simple here. I have the power of editing. Just just yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. I dare you to keep this out of the podcast. This is content gold. The 2021 NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. Very simple question here, Tyler. Are they a great NBA champion or the greatest NBA champion? Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) This is not a serious question. (laughs) So much buildup. I thought we were actually going to get a serious question here. Well, this is a serious answer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will. I mean, I'll certainly give you. Despite all of the nonsense that Milwaukee fans had to go through leading up to this championship of the crap about this being an asterisk championship this year, which is just, I mean, we can't curse on this show, but if I could, I would would give you a lot of curse words right here. Yeah, it's crap. Yeah, that was complete crap. So they're a great champion. I mean, because any, I mean, all is equal about any team is a great champion. And yeah, they, I, I'm giving a very sincere, serious answer, despite the, the, your nonsensical question. This was a slog this season. 
and just as you know the pee in the bubble was last year that there's no asterisk to the lakers in that championship in my opinion and this one even more so with having to you know come back and you know despite shoe size not you know durant not being quite small enough and the injuries what they had to do to win this year it was phenomenal they didn't have the best team in my opinion I think they showed that in certain ways, but they got better and they got better and Bud got better and Giannis became an all-time player. He became, you know, his ultimate form and that which is the uh, Greek god of basketball. If Milwaukee chooses to not build his statue out of uh, Corinthian marble, (laughs) I believe a very serious mistake. His Greek name is Spheronicus. Well, yeah. yeah, Nice. Yeah, I love seeing the bully ball, the Shaq-style bully ball in the form of the Greek god coming back Mm. in 2021. Thank you, Giannis. I've been waiting on this for forever, as of anybody who's watched 90s basketball has been, and I hope we see more of it going forward. All right, gents. Thanks. That was fun. That was a good one. All right, we're going to spend a couple minutes closing out the show and figuring out, because we have no idea what's next. (laughs) We'll be right back. (laughs) Battle terms. All right. There is something going on around here, something you may not even know about. So it's time to close the show. First of all, Tyler, thank you as always, man. It is such a joy to have you on the show and just hang out with you for a yeah, long time. I really enjoyed actually getting somewhere within the sphere of a heated argument with Brendan. <laughs> it's great. On the We're show. actually doing that. We're doing that more. Like we That's had a, a phone, like a two-hour phone call where we weren't really yelling at each other, but yeah, we were having an, an honest goodness debate, and That's great. it was great. That's great. That's what you want. Yeah, real conversation. That's wonderful. We don't know what, uh, <laughs> this sounds familiar. We're not sure because we don't know when the next Battle Tome's coming out, do we? We know it's August. But that's all we know. Yeah. In the month we don't of know August. if it's pre-ordered next weekend or weekend after. We don't sure. know. The other thing we know is that we do have a tournament in two weeks. Mm-hmm. We will do a NashCon recap for sure. That'll be an episode. But that's probably going to be three weeks if I'm looking at it. Because yeah. this will get posted around the 10th. And then uh, two weeks after that will be the Tuesday after NashCon. So we won't be recording at the earliest until the following Friday or Sunday, probably. Somewhere in that time frame, Yeah, because yeah. we will both have been traveling a lot. We'll see. But it'll be either a battle tome or it'll be a recap, for sure. And then That's... we have... Battle tomes after that. Stormclash sure. and Warclans. Yep. So a lot to do. Yeah. Great. Two battle tomes that are four battle tomes each. I'm <laughs> right. so excited. Yeah. yeah. Was... We have a Murphy bed in the other room, Brendan, so just bring your clothes. <laughs> we got a shower in the other bedroom. Yeah, bathroom. it's just going to... Oh, God. I would think we're looking at this Sunday, the the 8th or the preview, and then mm. the pre-order on the, the 14th. 14th and release okay. on the 21st, I, you, I would hope. What's your thought on which one's going to be first? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, are we going to get both dropped or is it going to be staggered? Again, I'm really hoping that they're just going to bite the bullet and drop both at the same time. Mm. And then maybe, you know, of course, Stormcasts are getting more, as one would expect, than the Crow Boys. So, yeah, no idea what they're going to do in terms of all of that. But I would think they're going to drop both at the same time. Okay. But who knows? Yeah. My gut check is both come out at the same time. And then over the subsequent, like, three to four weeks, you know, maybe even shorter than that. But you're going to get waves for both of them. Okay. Right. Where it's going to be, you know, basically the same thing at the same time. Like, oh, well, here's the Stormcast, like, super cool big monster. And here's the Cruel Boys super cool big mm-hmm. monster. And here you go. That's the pre-order this week. The next week is, here's the cool, super cool Stormcast, you know, elite unit. And mm-hmm. here's the cool Cruel Boys elite unit. 
here you go, give us your money, and it'll just be two things right next to each other, and I feel bad for the sucker that's compelled to buy both the armies at the same time, because, yikes. (laughs) Oh, man, crazy stuff. All right, then that's what we're thinking, and that's what we're going to do. Thank you, listeners, as always, for coming along for the ride. We really appreciate it. Hope everybody's doing good. It was... But well, you said it. that with some surprise in your tone. Yeah, that's that's well, weird. Compared to the last two, yeah, they, yeah. they were relatively I was normal. Getting, I was getting real comfortable with like the home by noon on Sundays, and uh, I was getting comfortable with only taking a day or two to edit. So that was uh, <laughs> now we're back to. But I got plenty of time. It's important to have reality inflicted on yourself from time to time. <laughs> and we're time stamped, so it makes it so easy for everybody. I love that we always do this at the end of the show. Yeah, I love like, that. <laughs> <laughs> like, why didn't you tell me this three hours ago? I don't know, just because I'm, I don't know, I'm sadistic. I, I don't know, I don't, that's not me, but maybe it is. I don't know. I don't so, know, I've anyway. been hearing some sadistic Dan lately. <laughs> I, I'm worried that I'm rubbing off as a character. Oh, God. So again, thanks everybody. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Brendan. We will see you all next time around. Bye! See ya. This is the end.